This week, Nicholas Means from Sim is with us to discuss building amazing distributed teams. Then Josh Corman from Clarity joins us to talk about the national cybersecurity strategy. Finally, in the enterprise security news, a raft of solid seed and Series A fundings, Cisco acquires Lightspin, XM Cyber acquires Conflu- Confluera, MasterCard acquires Baffin Bay Networks, YouTube channels keep getting hacked, Bing Bang, more problems for Microsoft, pausing AI experiments, AI prompt injection, zero trust challenges persist, public companies aren't adding security experts to their boards. All that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy World Backup Day, which is actually tomorrow, but you know, we're streaming today, not tomorrow. So this is episode 311 recorded on Thursday, March 30th, 2023. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria, and joining me is Brace yourself for stereotypes. The acolyte of Apple, the prince of poutine, Guillaume Ross. How are you, Guillaume? Uh, thank you. I'm doing great. I think the official title is uh, Poutine Sommelier. Um, oh, Poutine and, uh, Sommelier. For, thanks for reminding me that it's uh, World Backup Day. I, I, I do have one of my 62 domains I don't use uh, called isnotabackup.info, where I used to list a bunch of things that are not backups. So I think I need to uh, you know, bring that back up for uh, the public good. Bring it back up? <laughs> got what i was doing there yeah i i'm this is one of those few i mean usually it's uh, you know something silly that we that that we bring up but uh world backup day is is uh, it's important to draw attention to backups especially for consumers for folks who don't uh, necessarily back things up you know it's I've seen so many cases where, you know, people were not syncing their photos with the cloud and they they lose the phone, you know, can't get into the phone or, you know, something happens to a family member and and all their data is locked up and safely encrypted and nobody can get to it. Nobody can pay the bills. You know, so I guess, you know, more than just backups, like uh, I I tell people you need to think about, uh, you know, sharing account like critical account access and stuff like that. Personal no, disaster recovery is is what I call it. Personal right? disaster, like as, yeah. I, and I think as security people, we might be like even more at risk than than a lot because like your your laptop is backed up, encrypted on a NAS that's encrypted, yeah. that's in the cloud with client side encryption, and in the end, is anyone ever going to be able to restore? So I think we need a world test your restore day more than a world backup day. <laughs> yeah, that that's uh, yeah. So world backup day is is tomorrow. So uh, yeah, maybe world restore day is. April 1st. I didn't realize we're so close to April 1st. Yeah, so. Yep. Be careful with the news. <laughs> yep, absolutely. All right. Uh, quick uh, announcement here. Security Weekly listeners, Identiverse 2023 is heading to Vegas. Join the digital identity community at the Aria Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, May 30th to June 2nd. Identiverse is a must-attend annual event that brings together over 2,500 security professionals for four days of world-class learning, engagement, and entertainment. As a community member, you're able to receive 20% off your Identiverse 2023 tickets using code 
IDV23-SW20. Register today at securityweekly.com forward slash Identiverse 2023. All right, and today we're talking about trust, autonomy, and building amazing distributed teams. We've got Nicholas Means with us today. He's the VP of Engineering at SIM. He's been building software engineering teams for over a decade. He's an international keynote speaker and enjoys reading about engineering and aviation incidents while drinking excellent coffee. Welcome, Nick. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Adrian. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. It's uh, this is something that has impacted me personally and probably Guillaume personally. But uh, yeah, building engineering teams, uh, I, I've got direct appreciation for how difficult that can be. And uh, maybe to start out, like let, let's um, chat a bit about your work background and and how you came to. Uh, to be building your own engineering teams. Uh, do you have a, a dev background? Do you have an IT background? Uh, how did you come into this? I do have a dev background. I spent about a decade as a software engineer before I shifted on to the, the other side of the software engineering universe and started leading teams. Uh, I like to joke that I'm maybe the only person that decided to do that on purpose, um, decided to shift from technology to, to leadership, um, tried it as a team lead and quickly found that I was way more fascinated by the human problems than I was by the, the technical problems I had been solving. Hmm. Um, and so kind of stuck with me from there. Yeah. I, I mean, de definitely interesting. And, it, and there's so many different uh, styles and approaches. Like one of the things that's really bugged me o over the years is I, I feel like a lot of organizations don't have a good sense of how to track productivity, you know, in, with everybody moving to work from home, the pandemic, you know, I feel like that that got ratcheted up even more. The, you know, how do I know if work's getting done if I don't see butts in seats, you know, kind of really uncovered the, you know, the lack of ability to 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 see productivity. And maybe it's easier with uh, with software engineers than anyone else because a lot of that work does end up uh, being visual, right? You know, if you're checking code into repositories and things like that. Or am I yeah, wrong? I think am I off? No, I think I think you're spot on. I think that's actually a, a problem that a lot of leaders that are used to leading in an office environment ran into when everybody suddenly went remote at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it, it is pretty easy when you're in an office environment to kind of use the looking around the office, seeing who's there early, who looks like they're busy, who's surfing Reddit or whatever, and, and make your decision on who's being productive, who's getting good work done based on that. You know, that, like you said, the button seat style of management. Um, you take that away and, and all of a sudden you have to understand people's productivity in a very different way. You have to understand what they're producing. You have to look at, uh, in some cases, systemic production versus individual production uh, to, to figure out if people are actually doing their jobs, if things are getting done. And, and to your point, I think that's especially true for teams that aren't producing code that are, are doing other things in an organization. Yeah. One of the other things I learned is software engineers are probably, and this might just be my anecdotal experience, but it seems like they're more likely to have side hustles and distractions than uh, other technology workers, maybe. Have, have you found that to be true at all? I think it, I think it's definitely true. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because it, no. there's a lot of, there's a lot of learning that happens in those side hustles and people bring that learning back to the place that they work, uh, but it kind of gets into the the theme of, of what we wanted to talk about in this segment, and that's the the trust and autonomy piece. Um, 
you can balance those two things. You can balance the the side hustle with the main job as long as you're really tuned in and motivated and and feel connected to the day job. Um, feel feel motivated to do that work. Right. Um, when that connection starts to fizzle out, when it starts to get a little bit sloppy, uh, then then it is tempting to be a little bit more distracted there. It is a little bit more, it'll intrude a little bit more. And that's a thing that leaders have to keep in mind as they lead teams, that that their job is to set that context and to motivate. So, so is uh, the book uh, and, and also the concept extreme ownership like, like uh, really popular with uh, engineering management as it is, you know, I've seen in, in security circles as well, but that sense of, um, yeah, that sense of, of, you know, I guess giving a crap about what you're throwing over the wall when you're putting something together, you're, you're uh, doing pull requests, checking stuff in, um, you know, is, is that, uh, I mean, can you put metrics around that? How, how do you, how do you handle that as a, as a leader? You know, I haven't seen Jocko's stuff referenced as much on the engineering side of the house as on the ops side of the house. I know all of, all, I've heard about it from all of my ops friends and all of my SRE friends. Um, not as much from engineering friends. Um, but the, the question of how do you measure that is a really interesting one. Um, how do you measure ownership? How do you measure how bought in people actually are? Um, and I think one of the challenges there is you actually have to give people room for that to happen. Um, there's yeah. sort of this default mode of management that happens, especially in in the shift to distributed work in the wake of the pandemic, when you had those managers that were used to managing in an office and felt like they almost had to micromanage in a distributed environment to make sure that everybody knew what they were supposed to be working on, make sure everybody was doing their jobs. Um, and, and that the, the, the micromanagery approach to leading a team is one thing that will almost entirely deprive you of, of getting pe- to see people take ownership of things that need to get done. Right. And it's, uh, you know, I remember reading um, a paper a, a while back called uh, Better Testing, Worse Quality from, uh, I think her name was uh, Elizabeth Hendrickson. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but she's in the in the QA world. And, and the idea was that um, when she was noticing when they put uh, QA folks in, in place, the developers worried less about quality because there was now somebody who had quality in, in their title. You know, so mm-hmm. they, you know, they, they, they felt a responsibility shift for that and ended up doing, you know, poorer quality work. And to fix that, you know, they, they, you know, she, she determined that responsibility needed to be vocally shifted back uh, to the software engineer. And then they had to constrain the QA resource. So then, you know, the, and, and to what you say, you know, the, you know, she, she notes you can't do that without giving them the extra time that they're going to need to turn out higher quality stuff, you know, with, with similar deadlines or, or deadlines are just going to have to shift to accommodate that. But, um, you know, I, I, I took that in, uh, you know, I wondered if that didn't also apply to security, you know, cause in a lot of cases I've seen security, you know, the presence of a security department kind of seen as a, uh, shift of responsibility, like security is not something, uh, I, I mean, even beyond, you know, just a kind of passive thought that somebody else is worrying about security, so I don't need to, but almost more active where I've seen some security teams say, you can't do this. Uh, only we can do uh, the job of security, right? So they, you know, they they actively pull away responsibility for that. And, and I, I wonder if that's, um, you know, if that's something that that we have to manage as well. 
It's interesting as you were talking about uh, Elizabeth's paper. Um, that was the first thing that jumped to mind is sort of that relationship between engineering and security. Um, the best security teams I've ever seen are, are the ones that take a more consultative approach. They they show up, mm, they yeah. help you threat model the feature that you're going to build. They help you figure out which things to pay attention to, which things are, are safe to not spend as much time on and, and build out that plan as you're building a feature. I mean, that was certainly the case with the, the, the security team at GitHub. Anytime we would kick off a large new project, yes, it was a checklist on a, a, a check on a checklist of things you needed to do to kick off a project. But it was a thing that people actually welcomed at the start of a project was let's get security in here to look at this feature to talk about what we're building and figure out how we build it in a safe way. Um, whereas on the other hand, when when what you're talking about kind of happens when you have a security department that that takes on all of that responsibility, that that is vocally in charge and owns security for the organization, yeah, the engineers spend less time thinking about it. Right. Well, that's that that's for sure. And I agree with you that uh the teams that I've seen are more consultative, have um, better success. And I, th I always keep that in mind when I see these stats saying, oh, we need, you know, one million more cybersecurity experts in in, uh, in the U.S. by 2023 or blah, blah, blah. And it, to me, it feels like that just doesn't scale, right? Like that million new people, are they just like all finding issues and not addressing them? Or what are they supposed to do? Whereas I think if we collaborate, then you can scale much more, right? And that's why I think it, it, when I was doing consulting, for example, I think I saw a lot of companies that had really good security with pretty small security teams. And I also saw someone, some that had bad security with huge teams that just found a lot of issues, but just didn't get much done, right? So is, is that what you're observing as well? That with a smaller team, if you collaborate properly, you might be able to get much more done than with a much bigger security team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and it, and it goes back to that concept of ownership. Who owns security in the organization? Um, if, if the people that are writing the code don't ultimately own it, same with quality. If people that are writing the code don't ultimately own the quality of the product, then they're not going to pay as much attention to as they need to. And to to your point, Guillaume, you have to scale out a, a huge army of security professionals or QA professionals to try to make up for that gap. Whereas if you can build that ownership of security, of QA, of product thinking of, of building for the customer, if you can build that into your engineering process and teach your engineers that that stuff is important every time you build anything, then you can get much better results without having to spend as much money on outside personnel. Now, that's not to say they're not important. It's not to say that QA professionals, security professionals, product managers don't have a role. They absolutely do. I just think that the right way for that to happen is for it to be a, a more consultative educational approach where you, you build that ownership into the engineering process versus outsource it from the engineering process. Well, and that's a trust bit, right? You know, like, like trusting that you, you've hired you know, a professional, you know, they can do their job, you know, like you, you need to enable them to do that and, and somewhat get out of the way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny when I first shifted into, into management, this was a thing that I struggled with. Um, I felt like I needed to look busy in, in order to be perceived as doing my job. And, and it took me a number of years of being in that manager seat to realize that that's not what it's about. Um, and, and I needed to be looking for leadership to work under that could look at the results of what my team was producing to judge my work, to judge my approach as a manager versus looking at me and going, oh, is he busy? Is he producing direct output? Is he, is he writing documents? That sort of thing. Um, and, and I think this is a, it's a trap that, that a lot of new managers fall into where they, they shift out of an IC role where they're used to that fast feedback loop of writing code, seeing what happens, writing code, seeing what happens. 
and they shift into a role that has a much longer feedback loop. Uh, and instead of leaning into that trust, trusting their team to go to do good work, trusting their manager to see their their good work without a ton of direct individual contributor style output, they just get busy to try to prove they're doing something. And it ends up, they end up overmanaging, micromanaging, kind of making a mess of the situation because that trust piece is missing. Yeah, and I, I worry that in some organizations you might have to do that. Like you might have to do the wrong things, you know, to to keep your job, you know, to you know, to make some of the management happy. So that's kind of where I want to go next. Is um, you know, if you're brought into an organization that that kind of has the wrong approach to things, you know, the the approaches that don't work, but they they don't really know how to do it any better, so they they keep just pushing harder in in the wrong direction. Uh, you know, where do you start? You know, you come into an organization, say, as a as a engineering lead, and and I think a lot of this applies to you know most of what we're talking about doesn't just apply to uh, apply to software engineers, you know, but to uh, tech teams in general. And, and you know, goals are being missed, deadlines are being mi- missed. You know, management isn't happy with the employees. The employees aren't happy with management. Where where do you start? That's a great question. And, and it's it's hard to answer because it's always so situational. Right. Um, f- for me in that situation, it's always, okay, deadlines are being missed. Goals are being missed. The engineering organization is not doing the job that the rest of the organization expects it to do. Uh, is it a productivity gap? Is it a communication gap? Is it, do, do we not understand how hard our system is to work on? And so it takes us longer than we think it will to build anything because we've got a lot of technical debt that's weighing us down. So that's kind of step one is, is figuring out mm-hmm. where the, the gap actually is, where, where the two sides are not meeting up. And then from there, figuring out how to go about addressing it. Um, you know, one of the common pitfalls that, that I've seen when I've joined a new organization is trying to do too much at the same time. Uh, whip limits are mm-hmm. a thing that I reach for almost every time. Because if an engineering team is is going slower and not producing as much work as you expect them to, counterintuitively, nine times out of ten, it's because they're trying to do too many things at the same time, and they're spending yeah. so much time context switching that they can't actually do work. Um, when it's not that, yeah. it's it's a mismatch in expectations. There's they're, they're not understanding what the organization needs from them because the organization has not been clear about what the actual priority is and, and what things they can they can compromise on in order to get those that priority across the line um so it's almost always just missing context on on one side or the other yeah so there's two things i want to kind of dive into there that that you mentioned uh one is uh setting expectations you know yeah I, I think you mentioned an expectation uh expectations gap and that's that's a tough one right like somebody's going to ask you how long is this going to take you to you know, to do like this particular PR, this particular feature, something like that. And the, you know, the engineer gives an estimate, not, not knowing, you know, how many rabbit holes they're going to end up going down or, you know, what kind of uh, um, crazy duct tape code they're going to have to rewrite, refactor, you know, when they, when they turn over different stones and stuff like that. Like, how do you, how do you handle that? Because in my experience, Almost always, the initial expectation of the engineer is is way too um, ends up being way too short. You know, ends up being yeah. way too uh, um, hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's true. It's it, 
humans in general have this tendency to think that they can get something done in a lot less time than it's actually going to take them to get it done. And it's not just, not just software engineering. I mean, I, I, I think when I go and clean my house, it's going to take me less time and it ends up taking me a whole day. And then I'm frustrated that I've spent my whole day doing it. Um, right. So I, your you know, to-do it's, list it's, had 40 other things on it, right? <laughs> yep. Right. But I, th I think the main difference there is uh, if you clean your house, you could get better at estimating how long that takes because it'll be relatively similar from time to time. Whereas when yeah. we're working on software, we're pretty often doing something that, you know, sometimes you're, you'll re-implement something that's the same thing you've done before, but slightly different. But in many yep. cases, you're doing something brand new. It's just so much mm -hmm. harder to evaluate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a contrarian on this point in that I'm not a big believer in estimates. Uh, I, I think by and large, they're just noise. Um, unless you've spent a ton of time really dialing them in, understanding how long it takes you to build things. You've got, you know, if you're using a Fibonacci sequence to estimate, you've got great example tasks for every number on the Fibonacci sequence. Team's been working together for a long time and has built a lot of context around those numbers. Then you can kind of start getting close to, to estimates and, and getting estimates right and being able to extract uh, kind of reverse engineered time values out of that. But how much time do you spend to get there? And, and are accurate estimates really worth it? Is it really worth spending that much time to make them accurate versus mm. uh, kind of the, the approach that I prefer is if it's a thing that has a real date that we need to have it done by a certain date. Great. Let's work to that date. Let's figure out what the scope and, and quality levers need to look like in order for us to hit that date. And if we get close and we're not hitting it, okay, what can we pull back on? What can we compromise on so that we make sure that we are delivering something that does the job that the, the organization needs it to do by that date? Uh, if, uh, if there's, if there's not a date, um, okay, great. Then let's look at our priorities. Let's figure out what the most important things are that we need to get done and kind of how many of them we think we need to get done this quarter and work to that. I, I would much prefer to, to calibrate an engineering team towards the organization's expectation of how much they need to get them done. Obviously managing, managing that and pushing back when it's unrealistic than to spend a ton of time giving estimates and then missing them and then giving estimates and then missing them. So it sounds like, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about replacing, like putting a lot of effort into an accurate estimation with, uh, with more frequent check-ins and, you know, so, so you can, you can make adjustments uh, more often as needed to, to hit that date. Is that, yep. is that a good summary? Yep, that's a great summary. And then, I mean, the thing you lose there, and the thing that I think most organizations actually want out of, at least most engineering leaders want out of their estimation processes, is talking about features before you build them, actually unpacking them, trying to figure out as best you can what's in them. And there's other ways of accomplishing that. You don't necessarily have to put a number on it to have that level of, of depth in your discussion about a potential feature you're thinking about building. Uh, uh, at SEM, one of the things that we do is we, we write a feature brief for everything that we're going to build. Uh, my product mm -hmm. partner fills out like the 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 change log entry that we want to be able to publish at the end of that feature effort and writes a little bit of context around the customer problem. Then we hand that brief off to an engineer and they spend the time digging into the customer context, figuring out the right way to actually solve that problem versus having a, a feature prescribed to, prescribed to them to go right. out so, and so build. They're, they're enabled to perform some of the, what some people would think of as the, the product work on their own, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. My my, I always like to to say that that product's job is really to bring customer context into the conversation. Um, what is the what is the customer struggling with? What does the customer need us to solve for them? What does the customer need us to build for them? 
okay, now bring those things as inputs to the engineering process and let the engineers do the thing that engineers do and, and find, frankly, the laziest way to solve it. Uh, because the, everybody that got into engineering tends to get into it because they like using code as a way to get leverage yeah. on a problem. And that means you they're very lazy, efficient problem solvers. More efficient, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a it's it's a term meant to get your attention. But yeah, it's that's essentially what it means is, is more efficient, finding a way to solve a problem more simply uh, through through the use of code. And it's something that if you give an engineering team a backlog of well-defined work that tells them exactly what to build, that part of their brain often just doesn't even get engaged. Whereas if you give them a backlog full of problems to solve and you, you give them the time to actually solve those problems and to be collaborative and coming up with those solutions, you get much better solutions and, and generally you get them faster. So, so what you're talking about, is this similar to the Amazon six pager? Is this uh, like a forum of a PRD, you know, you know, are these all different things or similar? They're similar concepts. We don't spend as much time on them, uh, putting them together as like an Amazon six pager, for example. Um, mm -hmm. Just because we don't want to spend a ton of time on that artifact. We want it to be essentially only what we need to have an effective discussion around what we're going to build and how we're going to build it. And it usually ends up being, you know, if you printed one out, it might be two pages on, on the long side, but we tend gotcha. to work in pretty small units as well. So, you know, what is, what part of this problem can we solve over the next two weeks? Can we actually deploy that? Okay. It's going to be a longer running effort. What check-in do we want to get to by the end of two weeks to know if we're kind of on track on this project for where we want to be? We're making the kind of progress and haven't hit a bunch of unanticipated problems as we've been building it. And then perhaps somewhat related, I've heard people uh, throw around the the idea of a pre-mortem. Have you heard of those before? I've heard the term, but I, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, so as I understand it, it's, it's kind of the idea of like uh, spending more time, not just unpacking what it's going to be like to build the feature, but also unpacking um, all the myriad ways that it could fail, like, like it could break or, or that... Um, you know, kind of similar things. to uh, threat modeling, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's funny. I've, I, I wouldn't have called it that term, but that is a section that we have in uh, in the brief document that we do every time we do a feature. It's sort of open questions what? and unknowns, and it's okay. Here, here are the holes that we might fall into. And as we're discussing the the project before we kick it off, sometimes we'll we'll choose to do a spike in one of those directions just to kind of prove prove that out, get a little bit more solid ground before we commit to building the feature the way that we think we're going to build it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to, to jump into is you, you're talking about doing too many things. How do you know if you're doing too many things? And, and you mentioned context switching, which uh, as somebody with ADHD who already struggles with focus issues, you know, I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm always educating people on context switching, switching and the cost of that, especially when, uh, I find in a lot of cases, like management folks uh, maybe don't have a good understanding of what it takes to uh, to do creative work, you know, like like how long it takes to get into that uh, state of focus and to to maintain that state of focus. And the impact of adding yet another meeting in in the middle of that free time, you know, the impact that that has on productivity. So, so maybe unpack that a little bit, uh, you know, what it means, how you can recognize when you're doing too many things and, and people are struggling to be productive. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the first thing that I would pull out of, of the question you just asked is, is the idea that software engineering is creative work because it absolutely is. 
And I think yeah. that that's a thing that's probably underappreciated in, in the industry at large is, is just how much it has in common with other creative pursuits versus some other forms of, of more hard physical engineering where there's, you know, steel is steel is steel. It's going to behave like steel. That's not necessarily true of a complex software system. And so you, you, there is a huge element of creative problem solving that goes into building anything in, in the software world. And so that's kind of the baseline that we have to operate from. Uh, I like the idea, Paul Graham had introduced the idea, I don't know, in a blog post, probably 15 years ago of manager time versus <laughs> maker time. Yeah. And that's, that's a pretty important concept to me. I, I try to put one-on-ones on my team's calendar in places where it's not going to disrupt their most productive time of day, where I'm not going to pull them out of flow. In order to have a 30 minute conversation with them, um, it doesn't always work. Um, but I, I never want to interrupt their flow with a meeting if I can help it. Um, one of the interesting experiments that we tried at Sim that, that's worked surprisingly well for us, uh, it's an idea that came from Ben Darfler at Honeycomb. Um, he wrote a blog post, has kind of a clickbaity title. I think it's something like the, the daily stand up is dead for remote teams. Here's what to do instead. But the, the crux of the idea, is to have a one-hour daily team sync, just a one-hour standing meeting on the calendar every day, um, which sounds terrifying to, to me and to any software engineer that you try to introduce this idea to. Um, but the theory behind it is that it defragments your calendar. So if you kind of spend this hour together talking through the issues, talking through what you're building, then you don't have to have sort of a shotgun of, let's take this offline 30-minute meetings throughout the rest of the day to pull you out of flow. You get that mm-hmm. one hour meeting out of the way, and then you kind of have the rest of your day to yourself to work if, if you're, you're an engineer. Uh, my calendar as a manager is obviously less forgiving than that. I've got a lot more meetings than that, but it frees my team up to, to focus in, in a way that all of those meetings that used to spring out of our 15-minute stand-up were just interruptive. Right. So, so you're, you're creating this expectation of, of this section of time is always going to be uh, a meeting time taken up. Um, but whatever we need to talk about, you better squeeze it into that time because, uh, the rest of the time is off limits, right? Mm -hmm. You're protecting the rest of that time. Yep, exactly. And I mean, you know, the, we keep a running agenda. If we don't get to all of it, there, there are days when there are things that are important that we let the meeting run a little bit long for, but most of the time, anything we don't get to, we can just kick to tomorrow. So do those take the place of your 14 weekly one-on-ones with, with your direct reports or, or do you still have to do those? I still have to do those. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty convicted that that's the most important thing that a manager can do is, is one-on-ones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so important from a coaching perspective. It's so important from a career development perspective. It's so important from a, a gathering context perspective, you know, just understanding how the team is working together to build software, understanding what problems they're running into. Those things will come yeah. up in, in a one-on-one where they might not come up in a group setting. And, and how do you pull out the important things in those meetings? Like I've been in a lot of those, uh, like you're talking about the stand-up meetings, but also the one-on-one meetings where, you know, kind of the default, like everybody, you know, how's every, everything going? Anybody have any concerns or issues they need to talk about? And, you know, it, everybody's goal on that call is to get off that call. So <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody brings anything out. Everybody, oh yeah, it's fine. You know, and you know, in truth, you look at everything, everything's on fire. There's a bunch of problems that uh, could probably be um, eased by, by bringing it out and talking about it, maybe getting two people teamed up together to tackle something. But how do you, how do you surface that in those calls? Cause I feel like either, 
either just doesn't occur to you when you're asked at that time, like like should people be compiling this information somewhere, you know, preparing for these calls in some way, or is, is there a different way to lead these calls that kind of kind of pulls uh, the issues that need to be discussed to the surface? You know, it's interesting. I, I think one of the most important things to do in, on one, in a one-on-one is to talk about not work things, just to build that mm. relationship. Um, okay. Because the thing that, that often gets missed is building that foundation of relationship, that foundation of psychological safety that lets somebody say something to you that's a little uncomfortable to hear in the first place. Um, yeah. Because they have to, in order to bring up something that they're worried about or they're concerned about or they're mad about, their first the first thing they're going to think about is, okay, how is this going to make me look if I raise this issue to my manager? Right. And so if you as the manager haven't done the work to make it safe to raise that issue, you're never going to hear about it. Um, and then the the other thing that I tend to do, I tend to run a pretty open one-on-one. Sometimes some of my the folks that I lead like keeping one-on-one agendas. Most of them don't. And we just kind of wander around to the things that are important to, t- to them to talk about after we kind of catch up on how life is and what's going on. Uh, but we also have a, a retro every two weeks. And um, it has an anonymous section in it, which it's interesting, the arc of that anonymous section of the retro over time. Like when when I first introduced it, a whole lot of stuff got well, shared in that section. That was probably talk, talk the a little bit about section. like what what do you mean when you say retro? Like unpack that a little bit first. Yeah, great question. So every every couple of weeks, we have a, a one hour conversation on the calendar at the end of of one of our two week cycles to just talk about what went well, what didn't go so well, what we're concerned about, what we want to change um, in, in our software engineering process or in our product or really anything. Um, and you know, it's it's. It's an open discussion, so folks on the team can can raise things that they think went well, things that didn't go well. But then we have an anonymous section, and it's titled "Feelings," and it's uh, we do it in Google Docs, so everybody opens it in anonymous mode and just types in the things that they want to type into that section of the document. Um, and it does it does a couple of jobs. First of all, calling it "Feelings" makes it okay to bring feelings to work, because I think so often we try to turn that part of ourselves off at work, and it's uncomfortable not to, but it's important not to because it's what makes us human. And and by pretending we don't have those feelings, it's actually much harder for us to work together. Whereas if we can talk about them a little bit more openly, um, we can work through whatever's causing them. So that's that's one of the things I like about that section. But the other is it makes it safe to raise slightly controversial things, things that you might feel like are a little bit scary to raise, a little bit scary to talk about. And then my job as the person who's introduced this retro format is to make those things safe, to talk about them in a way that whoever put it on that document um, um, knows that that is a safe thing for us to talk about, that we can discuss things that are hard and a little bit scary and and make progress on them. And and the thing that kind of happens over time is there's less and less in that anonymous section and more of it just gets talked about in open forum because people feel comfortable and uh, safe bringing that stuff up. One big advantage of... um anonymous feedback like that that I've seen in, in different companies. So either in retrospectives or, for example, one of the things that we do here at Jupiter One is we really encourage people to submit things to the security th- team that they think could be improved, right? Like, oh, I don't think this mm-hmm. process this process could be better or whatever. And by being anonymous, you eliminate the risk of being voluntold to fix it, right? Like, oh, you saw the issue, you <laughs> fix it. And sometimes people will identify issues that, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it's not their direct responsibility. Maybe they actually don't want to be involved in fixing it, or maybe they don't mm-hmm. really know how to fix it, but they know it's a problem. And by being anonymous, then they just don't 
they don't they don't feel like they're at risk of being told to go and fix the problem and that's always a good way of uh you know making sure that people do discuss these things that might be very important but that they might just be afraid of discussing otherwise right so sometimes it's not because it's controversial it's just because you know if i'm the one that mentions this then i'm going to be told i now own this and i have to fix it and it's not really my thing blah 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 Whereas if we're told anonymously, then we can just find the best pe person to go and fix it, which sometimes might end up being the same person, but not always. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that sort of goes hand in hand with like the, the, the idea that you shouldn't bring a problem to your manager without bringing a solution as well. Um, mm. And there's some validity to spending time thinking about how you could solve a potential problem that you're raising to your manager and seeing if you can potentially address it yourself before you raise it. But what do you do if the answer is no, and there's an expectation that you're supposed to bring a solution? What if you don't have any idea how to sol how to solve that problem? Um, having an anonymous section of, of a retro or another anonymous feedback mechanism makes it where you can safely raise that problem without necessarily having to be the one that solves it. And then, and then over time, doing it in retro, the thing I love about it is it brings it into the context of collaborative problem solving, where whoever raised it doesn't feel the the onus on themselves to be the one that has to solve it. And, and, you know, one of the other things there, um, you know, I'm always worried that I'm the squeaky wheel, that I bring up too many problems. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> like when it's not anonymous, I, I'm like, ah, I already brought up three problems this week. I've hit my limit. I'm not going to bring anything else up. <laughs> yep, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I, I, I love that idea. I was just, I was just uh, chatting on our on our Discord saying I'm going to have to go back and rewatch this and, and take notes because there, there's a lot of good advice here. Uh, let's uh, shift over to talking about distributed teams and some of the challenges there. Uh, in a lot of jobs that I've worked, um, there's there's so many challenges. Like one of them is just time zones. You know, mm -hmm. for for a year and a half, I was the only U.S. employee of an entirely South African company. Uh, and, oh my goodness. And, and, yeah, and they're seven hours ahead, uh, yep. seven or eight hours, depending on on where our stupid daylight savings time was at at, at the time, and um, yeah, yeah. So I'm not even sure where to where to begin there. Do you have a good starting point on on distributed teams, like like how you how you um, how you manage the culture, how you get people to work together? You know, when maybe they speak different languages, they're sitting in different countries. I'm not sure how distributed uh, your teams are, what kind of issues that that you've you've had to deal with. So my team right now is only in in U.S. time zones, but I have worked um, with folks in in CET before, and I've had sort of that long spread where I had maybe an hour or two overlap with a, a few of the folks that I managed. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I think m my best tip for for building a productive distributed team that's different from what you would do in an office environment is to allow margin around meetings. Um, you know, in an office environment, you show up to the conference room, everybody should be on time. You kind of shut the chatter down early and get to get to work on the bulk of whatever it is you're there to talk about. Uh, in a remote environment, you sort of have to allow some margin around meetings for folks to have those connections that are not work-related for them to build connections that are, are or human from outside of their work life. You know, I talked about the one hour sync that we do. The other piece of that that I think is really critical is we intentionally waste, quote unquote, the first 10 minutes of it. Mm. We don't get into we don't get into the meat of the sync until we've just kind of sat there and shot the breeze for for 10 minutes. Um we and, never and nobody, have a hard nobody has to feel guilty about that because you've right. given them permission. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And it it 
it fills the role that like gathering around the coffee maker or the water cooler or going to lunch together or going to happy hour together would fill in in an in-office environment, at least part part of the way. Uh, right. I, I think you still have to get together face to face every now and again because there's there's some level of human connection that you really can't build any other way than just sitting down to a meal together and, and having a good time together eating and, and drinking and talking. Um, but if you've got that foundation periodically, then having 10 or 15 minutes to waste um, just talking to each other on a daily or a, a every other day basis can go a long way to making that those connections last longer before you have to have to get people together in person again and kind of re-up them. And, and before we have to wrap this conversation, I, I just want to touch a bit on, on your uh, research into because uh, this is something I've done as well. And I find this fascinating, you know, kind of looking to successes and failures in, in other places, like out, outside your own um, uh, vertical, outside your own, your own outside software engineering, basically. So aviation, uh, engineering, you know, things like that. Uh, you know, what, what, what are some of the interesting things that you've learned reading about aviation accidents or engineering successes or failures and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the first kind of the first conference presentation I did on this was about United Flight 232, um, and I'll I'll spare the gory details, but sort of the conclusion from that incident was the it was the first aviation accident where the idea of crew resource management got the crew to a better outcome than they would have gotten to otherwise. Um, and crew resource management is the idea that during an emergency situation, everybody's voice in the cockpit matters. Everybody has a role in solving that situation. Um, kind of the, the paradigm before that was that the captain's word went and whatever the captain said was what they would do. Um, there's a famous incident where a, a plane flew around the, the airport in Portland because it had a landing gear light on that showed that the landing gear wasn't extended. And despite the navigator saying over and over again, we're about out of fuel, they never made the approach to the airport and landed. They actually crashed about a mile or two out, out of the field because nobody wanted to challenge the captain on the fact that they were, they were out of fuel. Um, and so, you know, a, applying that to a software engineering team, it's pretty easy to make a case that you need to make a psychologically safe environment so that everybody can have input into the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and then you can go and read Google's Project Aristotle document and, and some other things around the effects of psychological safety on software engineering teams and, and see that carry into the software engineering world. Um, the, I've done a talk on Three Mile Island as well, and there's so much good learning there from, from the idea of second stories and, and blameless postmortems. Um, because on a first pass, some of the things the operators did look pretty counterintuitive and like they might have made the accident worse. But then you get into actually the the why they did what they did, and it makes perfect sense. It was an it was an educational gap, and they were actually doing the best that they possibly could have given the training that they'd received and the understanding they had of the reactor that they were operating. <laughs> I feel I feel like that's one of the reasons I enjoyed Chernobyl so much, even though it's, it's such a dark uh, series, the the HBO Chernobyl series. But mm -hmm. uh, I I feel like they did a good job in that. In, in in like I mean, there's an entire episode that's nothing but a post mortem, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, the the book Midnight at Chernobyl is really good as well. Along along those same lines, kind of gets into more detail about the the, the sequence that happened there. And before we let you go, uh, I think you have a few more. Uh, good resources to recommend. Uh, you know, you mentioned a few. I, I can remind you if you don't remember what you mentioned in the prep call. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It's been so long since we had that prep call. Um, Skunk, Skunk Works was one. Yeah, I did. I did a talk on 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 Skunk Works, and that's that really has informed a lot of 
the ownership approach that I take in, in leading software engineering teams, because that was a big part of what Kelly Johnson did at Skunk Works. Um, the mm-hmm. the amazing planes that they built there, like the the SR seventy one, the F one seventeen, um, the U two, uh, they were all built with surprisingly small staffs. And the way that they were able to be successful was that he gave them all tremendous ownership in the project, and he trusted them to either get it done or raise their hand early and 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 ask for help if they needed help if they couldn't solve the problem that they had set out to solve. Um, some very clear parallels in that. And uh, there's there's a very good book by Ben Rich, who worked under Kelly Johnson at Skunk Works, that kind of gets into some of the history of that organization. Great book. Was actually required reading uh, for me at, at one of the startups that I've worked for and and yeah. uh, enjoyed every bit of it. Uh, and then the other one you mentioned was uh, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Yeah, that's so that's an interesting story i'm trying to think i haven't figured out the right way to apply that to software engineering yet i'm still thinking about it i'm convinced that there is a talk there um but i don't know what it is yet um i'll instead of talking about that i will i'll point your listeners to turn the ship around by david marquet um it's my favorite management book and i i recommend it to every person i know that shifting from individual being an individual computer to being a manager uh, and kind of what it gets into, um, David Marquet is a captain on a nuclear submarine. Uh, it's the worst performing sub in, in the fleet, and he turns it around. He makes it the best performing sub in the fleet, but he does it by being pretty counterintuitive, um, kind of getting away from the traditional military hierarchy command and control structure, and instead expecting his staff on the boat to own their areas that they're in charge of and to to declare their intent, to talk about, okay, I'm, I'm going to dive us to a thousand feet. And give him the opportunity to essentially object. And as long as he doesn't object, go ahead and make the move. And building that ownership over time, teaching the, the folks on the boat, giving them an appropriate level of autonomy um, within the bounds of safety, eventually did exactly what we were talking about earlier in the call. It built that level of extreme ownership to the point that they all knew their job. They all did their job really well. And it made it the best performing sub in, in the fleet. And it's it's sort of one of those things that like if you think a high ownership, high autonomy approach to leadership can't work, seeing a case study where it works really well in the US Navy is is a pretty good counterpoint to that. Well, excellent stuff, Nick. Uh, as I said before, I'm going to have to go back and, re- and rewatch this episode, take some notes. Uh, definitely want to check out some of these some of these books, some of these resources that you recommended, and I want to try out some of the uh, uh, you know the team building and, and management. Uh, uh, suggestions that you recommended as well. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Enterprise Security Weekly today, though. This has been really good. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Adrian. I guess the, o- the only thing I would leave your your listeners with is I do work at SEM. I got to get a plug in real quick. Uh, we sure. build software that that lets you declare authorization and approval workflows for production environments using Terraform and Python. So it moves your authorization and approval process alongside the rest of your infrastructure's code code. Um, and it seems like something that that would be interesting and useful to your audience. So if they're interested, I would encourage them to go check it out at simops.com, S-Y-M-O-P-S.com. And, and to quote uh, Guillaume from the back channel, this product looks really cool, which is which is a uh, uh, good sign if, if nice. Guillaume likes it. <laughs> Merci, Guillaume. Bienvenue. <laughs> All right. And stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk national cybersecurity strategy with Josh Gorman. Attackers are only getting more proficient, so how can you proactively adapt your cybersecurity strategy? 
Core Security by Fortra helps you uncover and prioritize the risks that pose the biggest threat to your organization. Core Impact is a penetration testing tool that safely finds and exploits vulnerabilities using the same techniques as attackers. You can conduct advanced pen tests with ease using certified exploits and automation. Take your engagements further by pairing with our red teaming tools from Cobalt Strike and Outflank. Learn more at www.securityweekly.com forward slash core security. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover in one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. All right, and for this interview, we are talking to Josh Corman, who joins us today to talk about the White House's recently released uh, National Cybersecurity Strategy. Josh is one of the most mission-oriented cybersecurity folks I know. He co-founded Rugged Software and I Am the Cavalry, both massive security initiatives to educate and build security awareness for a world that's increasingly dependent on digital infrastructure. He has served as the director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative for the Atlantic Council, chief strategist for the CISO COVID Task Force, was an industry analyst, held some vendor roles as well, which... You know, are 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 probably the, like the least interesting of all the stuff that that Josh has done. But just just so you know, he's he's done that stuff as well. Currently, the VP of Cyber Safety Strategy at Clarity, good friend, and one of the rare folks I can rely on to to really tell me what he thinks, not just what he thinks I want to hear. Welcome to the <laughs> show, Josh. Thank you for having me on. And I think that context is important for the discussion we're going to have today because you actually had a hand in uh putting together this strategy correct yeah it's been uh lots lots of people contributed but um i was already motivated i've helped on the last few of these but um extra motivated because of the sysicova task force we learned a lot about the strengths and weaknesses and how we approach critical infrastructure and the broken incentives so uh had a lot to do with 2.5 of the three of the five pillars or so so could probably give context you wouldn't see just from reading it Right. And, you know, honestly, I'm going to ask you where, where the best place to start is here, because I, I think uh, this is this is one of the rare cases where you probably have a better idea how to how to structure this conversation uh, than I do. That That's usually my job as, as the host. But uh, embarrassingly, I'm, I'm going to ask for some help here. Maybe we could start uh, with sure. what you think is the most controversial in there. Most controversial. Uh, that's probably where yeah. I was going to start anyhow. Uh, Catherine, what about you? What do you think? <laughs> um, well, I think it's definitely around software liability, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. So tiny bit of context. In fact, I, when I was doing my prep with uh, Adrian a little bit, we actually have to start a little earlier, but I'll start where you're asking me to and we can back up and then jump forward. Um, in theory, each White House will put out a strategy on cybersecurity, which is to telegraph their priorities. And some people think these don't mean anything. It's just an obligation. There's nothing really controversial or meaningful there. You can generally ignore them. I don't think that's the case here. Um, at a minimum, it, it's meant to set a tone for where the White House and the executive branch are going to emphasize things while they're in power. It usually tees up what they're going to ask Congress to do or encourage Congress to do in the legislative branch. 
people forget this as well, but sometimes it's telegraphing to the um, the judiciary branch. Um, if they have court cases come up, this is our current thinking, our current interpretation of the world. So they're never really meaningless and they're never really complete, but this one's got some really big ships in it that if you hadn't paid attention, um, you might miss. So I can call them out for us and try to discuss. But generally speaking, when these come out, um, it's not how to do something. It's just saying these are the things we think are important. It's also followed by implementation strategies. Sometimes they're summarizing things they already started and you heard about. Sometimes they're telegraphing something really new and really bold. Um, so without doing a civics lesson on everything, this year had five pillars. Um, first one was called defending critical infrastructure. Second was called disrupting mental threat actors. Third was shaping market forces to drive security and resilience. Fourth was investment in a resilient future. And fifth was forging international partnerships. Um, for me, for someone who cares about where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood, I think the most um, critical ones, the ones I focused most of my attention on were pillars one and three. So in a lot of these strategies, they talk about defending federal agencies and federal governments and federal IT. This one says essentially critical infrastructure is the most critical. Um, why? Well, if you squint while I was in CISA running the CISA task force, um, even outside of healthcare, we hyperconnectivity and more aggressive adversaries had proof of the ability to disrupt the water you drink, the food you put on your table, oil and gas pipelines that fuel our cars, homes, and supply chains, the schools your kids go to, municipalities who run towns and cities, federal agencies, and even timely access to patient care. And last May, I testified about the first proof of loss of life from ransom attacks in hospitals. So once you start to see um, instability and unresilient performance of basic human needs like water, food, shelter, safety, access to patient care, the public part of the public-private partnership says we have a role to play. You can't just do what's right for your company. We have to do what's right for public safety and national security. So it's not typical to see such a full-throated focus on critical infrastructure as they did with pillar one. Um, I'll pause, then I'll get to the really controversial one of pillar three, but uh, anything so far? You know, one of the things I liked about this and where I really heard your voice, uh, Josh, is is in the language. You know, you, oh. you bring, uh, I've noticed you, you, you bring a lot of um, like safety and, and healthcare related terminology uh, to this, which, which I think really kind of transforms um, you know, the, the, the focus here, you know, especially as, you know, the concerns about security shift into those spaces, you know, yeah. where, where, uh, there, there is real concern about it, uh, impacting, like, like you say, flesh and blood. Yeah. Um, so the, the real controversial one is pillar three, which is shaping market forces. I mean, if I had to use casual language and maybe even flippant language, Pillar one is critical infrastructure is the most critical thing for this administration. Pillar two is just take the fight back to the adversaries. Um, a lot of that's probably saber rattling. You know, we only have certain laws and authorities and that's complicated. And they're usually maximizing those. Uh, pillar three is the brand new stuff, which is essentially my own words saying, uh, hey, the public private partnership usually means the private sector says, please don't regulate us. We don't want to be regulated. And the government says, okay. Uh, so it's usually been a very dominant uh, voice of industry and trade associations and lobbyists. And the government tries not to use the heavy hand of government to stifle innovation, et cetera, et cetera. But what they're saying here is that um, what we're doing is, is not working and it's not balanced. So there needs to be a rebalance. And some of the jargon you'll hear from um, 
uh, Chris Inglis before he retired or now Kemba is um, that free market sources can uh, free market forces can only take you so far. There is a time and a place to use the the power of government to do what's right for everyone instead of right just right for one company at a time. And we're going to use that power. We're going to use a light touch, but no lighter than is required. And essentially, if you've heard Ann Newberger from the White House National Cybersecurity Council uh, speaking or any of these folks, they're saying, look, where we have existing regulatory authorities across these 16 critical infrastructure sectors, we are going, often they are underutilized or even unutilized. So where we have authorities, we're going to maximize the use of those authorities better late than never. Where we lack authorities, we're asking Congress to aggressively grant us new authorities to regulate um, at least minimum cybersecurity resilience hygiene for these critical infrastructure sectors. And since often the liability or the harm uh, and the cost and the burden is squarely on the shoulders of you know teenagers or owners and operators of rural hospitals and water facilities, as opposed to the suppliers who sell them unsupported end-of-life software or hard-coded passwords or don't support MFA, is that they want a rebalancing to put to shift some of the cost burden on those in the best position to absorb and avoid that risk. So that means they want to look at the supply chain selling into critical infrastructure. So maybe medical devices probably shouldn't have Windows XP brand new today uh, that's end of life. So they're they're introducing the concept of we probably need to finally grapple with and introduce software liability for final goods assemblers um, with Safe Harbor. But this one's you know causing severe panic and um, hot takes and whatnot in industry. Um, but what they're going to do is use the power they have now more than they have, even within one day, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency put out some initial um, regulatory expectations for all water and wastewater, um, similar with uh, airports and others. And you may recall after Colonial, uh, the White House NSC had already done this with pipelines. They asked TSA to aggressively come up with minimum hygiene expectations for oil and gas pipelines and so what this can is we ex probably expect the area that, where most that of safe, friends are. Uh, you just mentioned safe harbor right the what can we expect it to look like you have any idea do we know yet i have some ideas um again this is the strategy document i could pontificate i could tell you what i would like to see and prefer i can point you some things that I and others have talked about for, for many, many years in public about what that could look like, and maybe we should do a little pontification. But I think most of the hot takes you've seen, um, some of them are you know, genuine concerns. Some of them are a little, if not quite off base on pillar three, but that's usually where the discussion is. But before you uh, get into the controversy, I guess, there is a, a tiny piece of pillar four that I think is pretty important. Pillar four is kind of like the grab bag of a lot of important things that didn't have a home. It's like the island of misfit toys a little bit. And there's a mix of some good things in there and some, some things. Maybe we should uh, we should just name them. So pillar four is invest in a resilient future, right? Yeah, yeah. And the last one's about strengthening international partnerships. But the most meat is um, critical infrastructure focus of one and shaping incentives. You know, one of the things we've said on this podcast before, um, at least with the, the Paul show, is we actually know how to eliminate SQL injection. We know how to make it extinct, but we haven't. So it's not mm -hmm. a technical gap, it's an incentive gap. And right. I think, you know, the White House is, and, and even Congress, because I, I told you this started before the White House paper, but Congress is showing bipartisan support and the White House is aligned with them that, okay, no, you can't just do voluntary. NIST cybersecurity framework came out about right, a decade right. ago. 
a decade ago to prevent right. regulation. But a decade later, very, very, very few people are adopting it in critical infrastructure. So they're going to have to do something to keep the trust of the public. So so the question that, that Pillar 3 kind of really keeps lingering in the back of my head is like, like you're talking about the uh, the stakeholders most capable of taking action, to, to quote it yeah. here. Um, you know, should should be uh, should have responsibility. But what are the chances that that we can enforce this and, and get this right when the people most likely to bear the cost uh, or that should be bearing the cost also have the greatest ability to to lobby lawmakers? Yeah. Well, uh, maybe this is the best part to jump back and then I can get I'm not dodging the safe harbor question. We can pontificate. I'm just not speaking formally for the White House or for Congress because that's going to have to go through Congress or the courts. Right. And my money's on the courts, by the way. Uh, everyone's focused on Congress, but my money's on the courts. Um, so in parallel with this, as proof, as a canary in the coal mine, um, I think my first time briefing Congress ever was January, for first week of January in 2014. And I basically outlined my deep concern over medical device cybersecurity and software transparency. So it was a mixture of software bill materials and what's the minimum seatbelt laws we should have for medical devices. I hadn't even built a trust relationship with Suzanne Schwartz yet at FDA. But almost nine years to the day, uh, on December 22nd or 23rd, um, while I was on my honeymoon, um, the Patch Act uh, got included in the omnibus appropriations bill and passed it into law of the land. And what's in the Patch Act is uh, statutory authority in the law to give the FDA mandatory minimum cyber hygiene enforcement for all medical devices. And it includes things like you have to be patchable and patch in a timely manner. You have to have a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program to work with good faith researchers and hackers. You have to have a machine generated, machine readable software bill of materials as part of your submission, threat modeling, things like that. So that's an example where if you want to bring um, a medical device to market or an updated medical device through a 510k, you have to do these things now. They're not optional because there's life safety implications. So to your point about lobbyists, this was why I, I knew we were in a new place is I, I did testify last May to the Senate Health Committee, which is healthcare, education, labor, and pensions about the first proof of loss of life. They were trying to decide if they had enough political will to pick this fight with the lobbyists and the trade associations for medical devices. And, you know, you can go watch it and watch my statement or the cross examinations. But ultimately, what I came to learn is that the Republican senator from Louisiana, a physician himself, fought tooth and nail against the lobbyists all the way to the last minute against a lot of money and got this through. Uh, it had already passed the House earlier in the year. Didn't look like it was going to pass the Senate, but he got it in. And to me, this was the warning shot that I think this was the first time that people said, yes, lobbyists don't want this. Yes, private sector is trying to shirk the responsibility. And we have a job to do for public safety. That's our role. So. This newfound political will to me is not just on the medical stuff. You've seen similar um, bipartisan support for water and wastewater, for small, medium, or rural electricity, electricity for K through 12 schools. You know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where they put it off as long as they can, and they're gonna at least try to crawl, walk, run. So yes, there's big lobbyists, and um, at least Congress told them no on the Patch Act. So all these years later, um, there was just a recent announcement, obviously, with the FDA. They are now, uh, I think it's as of yesterday, I, I looking at my calendar, 
The yeah, FDA can now refuse medical device submissions yeah. for any kind of cybersecurity misalignment um, or, or failure to meet those requirements. So one, how gratifying is it to you? And two, what does this mean in all practicality for other IoT unmanaged device type assets that are coming to market? Uh, those are different questions. Uh, it was very gratifying. I bought an extra bottle of champagne uh, on my honeymoon when we learned. Um, it's actually the second law we've helped with uh, to pass. But um, this one, I, I believe more in. I think Suzanne at, at FDA absolutely intends to enforce this. The first one we passed was the IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act, and it hasn't had rulemaking yet, even though it passed more than two years ago. Uh, although this White House strategy is asking them to finally do the rule rulemaking on that. So yes, very gratifying. Um, it was hacker-informed. Lots and lots of people you know and trust um, have contributed to that overall thinking. But it took. it's also depressing that it, it took nine years to say, let's finally mm -hmm. have mandatory minimums. These are, this is essentially the seatbelt laws for dev medical devices. And there were attempts to legislate minimum cybersecurity uh, before the NIST cybersecurity framework. The NIST cybersecurity framework was a stalling action in part. I mean, of course, it's great and everybody uses it. But part of the way the Chamber of Commerce and the trade associations framed it was, let's buy some time. Let's do some voluntary stuff. We don't need regulation. But there's been a bunch of Office of Inspector General reports and other things showing incredibly low adoption rates of that voluntary framework, especially in critical infrastructure. So while you saw that law pass as an example, while the National Cybersecurity Strategy was published uh, recently and we're talking about it now, it, this dovetails with other things you might have heard of as well, like um, uh, the White House had given, when I was at CISA, in fact, I don't think Adrian even knew I was at CISA, um, but while we were protecting hospitals and the vaccine supply chains, we found about 85% of the targets um, had no single cybersecurity person on staff, zero. So 85% of the hospitals, many of these vaccine suppliers were completely prone. They had cyber physical systems reachable on Shodan with hard-coded passwords, unsupported operating systems. So I said, guys, stop just uttering best practices. You're like Marie Antoinette saying, if they have no bread, just let them eat cake. Like, this is ridiculous. They can't just do zero trust or just do best practices. So I pushed something pretty hard that you can still see today called CISA.gov bad practices. Um, and these are the two, and now it's three, um, most dangerous practices in critical infrastructure. Um, for example, the use of end-of-life unsupported operating systems in service of critical infrastructure and national critical functions is dangerous. Um, same thing for uh, hard-coded, well-known maintenance default passwords. And then a similar one was added later. But these things were meant to meet people where they are and identify and buy down risk. The White House really liked that. And they said, okay, the NIST cybersecurity framework's 400 pages, lots of controls. But if you're not doing anything yet, where do you start? So they tasked CISA with something they published last fall called the Cyber Performance Goals. They're not really performance goals, but they're good in that they are the 39 starting point uh, controls of that overall 400 page document. So think in a crawl, walk, run, this is the crawl stage. So if bad practices are maybe the definition of negligence for an operator, then the CPGs are supposed to be cross-sector, generic, baseline practices that people should do immediately. And if you really squint between the CPGs and the White House is saying in pillar one, they want each of the sector 
specific risk management agencies to start with the CPGs and then make fit for purpose sector specific adjustments for those minimum hygiene. So while the FDA was ahead of the curve with the Patch Act and yes, announced their rulings uh, on how to enforce that yesterday, um, they said they're going to give a grace period until October 1st, technically. But yeah, pretty soon you won't be able to submit crappy documentation or crappy cybersecurity. Um, they have a head start, you know, within a day of this publishing, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency for Water and Wastewater, theirs is not a requirement to do all the controls, but their first move directed by the White House was, hey, water and wastewater on your annual sanitation survey, please answer this survey. And if you look at the survey questions, it's the 39 cyber performance goals. So they want to get an assessment of how is the water situation across the 50 states and territories. Um, against and, and, and that's yeah. that's within a day uh, of the cybersecurity strategy getting published. Just to clarify, because you, you mentioned yeah. a couple documents there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's several. You know, I think if the White House gets their way, there's the 16 critical infrastructure sectors. Each one has their own regulators. Some regulate the owners and operators of the infrastructure and the service delivery. Some regulate the devices that go into those, like the FDA. So in the case of healthcare and public health, FDA's got a head start with the Patch Act, but there's really no minimum cyber hygiene at all for hospitals. There's HIPAA rules for patient data. But as I said during my task force for Congress in 2017, um, we have more incentive to have a, a corpse with their privacy intact than to protect patient care. So you can the only laws and regulations we have on hospital cyber safety and resilience is around the confidentiality of data. And in kind, on the backs of the Patch Act, Senator Warner, who's pretty tech savvy, um, he's planning several rounds of legislation after a white paper he published in December called Cybersecurity is Patient Safety. So there's a huge shift now that while we have regulated patient data, we have done nothing for patient safety. Uh, similarly, Robin Kelly of Illinois in the House, she has legislation that she wants to make minimum standards for the hospitals as well, but understands that small, medium rurals don't have enough money or resources to meet those standards. So she's also giving stimulus packages to say, um, here's money if you're under this certain bed count where we will help you achieve those minimums. So we're again, we're in a very different place. Um, the mandatory minimums around CBGs are aimed at the owners and operators. The liability comments and things like the Patch Act are aimed at the suppliers who sell into those owners and operators. So how much of this will get executed and in which order is going to be based on how strong-willed the lobbyists are or how strong-willed each of the sector risk management agencies are. But the guidance from the White House is really focused not on all critical infrastructure, but on the most time-sensitive, latency-sensitive infrastructure that could lead to mass casualties or a crisis of the confidence of public. Think bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, water, healthcare, electricity, energy. Those things are getting the first and, and hardest set of focus not consumer electronics. Talking so, about, so, uh, you, you mentioned stimulus for you know helping yeah. hospitals who obviously can't afford to spend all that money on cybersecurity because they probably don't have unlimited budget to even help all the, the patients that, uh, that they have. One thing I was surprised not to see in the um, cybersecurity strategy, but maybe it's because that's not where it goes, right? Like I, I don't know that much about how the White House works. I'm not even American, right? That being said, I'll be impacted by this You're no not? matter what because no, I'm not. Uh, surprisingly, <laughs> that's, that's why he's on this call, so he he can ask all the uncomfortable questions since he's Canadian. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I'm just wondering, shouldn't there be more of a um, 
suggestion of a like almost like a stimulus package for important open source software. One thing that definitely struck me was there's almost no mention of open source in the entire strategy, right? Like if you do a find and page open source, well, of course, there's like 16 ways of writing it with a space, a hyphen, no space, whatever, but you'll find very little mention of it. Yeah, that's that's a, a pretty good point. Um, I did several table reads. You, they don't ship this around; it would leak instantaneously if they did. So you have to go in person, which makes it hard when you don't live in DC. Um, but there were several versions of this, and it was fascinating for me to see which versions got stripped down to nearly nothing, and which ones held their ground pretty well. Um, but there was a lot of discussion around um, open source software supply chains, etc. And while I did, I don't. I think you're right. The final versions didn't quite use the language that you are. Um, there are vestiges of this in different spots. Like, for example, when they talk about um, shaping market forces and shifting the burden to those in the best position to identify and buy down risk, they they specifically say not the owners and operators and not free open source projects, right? So some people freaked out. Right, right. That's one of the like two or three mentions of open source there, which is, you know, let's make sure that the the two people maintaining this GitHub project don't end up responsible for the uh, $18 million breach, right? Which I, right. I, I think makes sense, but I just didn't see anything around improving the security of open source in general. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, the only solace I can give you right now in a hurry is um, a couple things. Uh, they do refer to doubling down on software bill materials um, in one of the pillars. I, I want to say it was pillar one. Um, and the executive order 14028, which came out in spring of um, 2021, I want to say, uh, it's the final enforcement for many of those actions. That's for federal procurement and acquisition. So see, see the, not that you have this in front of you, but I have my little cheat sheet. Um, one of the, um, oh yeah, it's section 3.5. So pillar three, section five says leverage federal procurement to improve accountability. So just like executive order 14028 said, this was the president's response to things like solar winds, but not exclusively solar winds. This is where they said, hey, we should define what critical infrastructure and software looks like. We should have use the power of the federal government's purchasing to make sure everything we buy is trustworthy and transparent. One of my contributions to that was the sentence of, in the end, the trust we place in our digital infrastructure should be proportional how trustworthy and transparent that infrastructure is and to the consequences we will incur if that trust is misplaced. So that was the section that kind of said, hey, I could have guessed that was your your sentence yeah, when yeah. Uh, when I read it. So <laughs> what, what that could turn into is, for example, if we had like a, you know, like a hard bleed situation and there's all this software that includes open SSL, well, then the government could go ahead and use their spending power to say, OK, let's let's go fix open SSL, for example. Yeah, I'm doing a bad job getting to it. But so part of what happened in Paris, so A, they're going to continue to invest on top of executive order 14028, which had a lot of open source stuff in it Two, or B, um, several side projects happened. Uh, Congress introduced a bill late last year for open source um, funding and prioritization, especially in critical infrastructure. Um, Jack Cable, if you know him, he's very tech literate. He was a congressional tech fellow uh, on that staff. Now he's back over at CISA. CIS is really ramping up um, some of their projects, and some of these are public and some of them are less public, but there are increasing attempts to understand um, where which open source packages are most dependent upon, not just the federal government, but in critical infrastructure. Um, because once we have a knowledge of prevalence and dependence, then part of the argument here, and the White House has already held several meetings with open source thought leaders, 
uh, and contributors is um, how do we make sure that you know we're not just taking advantage of these free resources, but we're maybe investing in them. And in some cases, specifically the one you mentioned, I keep reminding them for OpenSSL, this is it's this huge, you know, monolith kitchen sink project with tons of complexity and features and subfeatures. And a lot of people might use that entire project just for random number generation, but they might get the attack surface of a lot more. So in some cases, if we can't have high assurance implementations of TLS, for example, you know, perhaps we should be funding um, and investing in or encouraging and incentivizing investment in maybe smaller stack, more modular, more high assurance um, implementations of some of these libraries, because um, if you're only as strong as your weakest link, and as we discussed on the webinar we just did together, that old uh, uh, XKCD comic of like the stack of blocks and this tiny little open source project with one yeah. guy maintaining it could make the entire system fall down. Um, we're really blind to that. And my passion and mission on SBOM for the last decade, uh, even though some of our friends hate it, is you know you cannot measure manage it if you don't know you have it and we are really blind um to what open source is pervading which places and and which ones are unsupported or in end of life or have known exploited vulnerabilities in it and i think um this is a multi-pronged approach and i think in the implementation you'll see more but there's quite a few projects that are trying to better understand the prevalence and dependence on certain open source so that we can either fund them correctly or uh, mitigate those risks or have better transparency and line of sight for those risks. So be because we don't see that in the strategy doesn't mean it's not happening. It's just happening in different places. Yeah, I, I do think it could have more cohesion because um, I'm aware of several and whenever I compare notes to someone else, they're aware of a few that I didn't know about. Um, but the good news is they're looking at it. And I, I do think as a byproduct of this software liability discussion, um, it's going to come up a lot more um, that you know somewhere between 85 and 95 percent of closed source code is open source code and you and i know that for a long long time um but very very few people have really reckoned with that yeah they, they uh yeah it's one of those uh one of those things like like once you start telling somebody like how fragile a lot of this is like it's uh you know, it's, 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 it's scary and it's, uh, and, and it's, it, it's hard to, well, and speaking of fragile, you know, something I wanted to, to ask here, uh, which is unrelated, more, more zoomed out is, uh, how, how fragile this whole thing is, you know, with the, you know, the label white house on it, you know, obviously it's, it, it's, um, you know, kicking off and, and related to some other projects going on, you know, that, that have, uh, sounds like more bipartisan support, but, uh, you know, when, when the White House, you know, the next change in the White House happens, how, how fragile is, is all this? And, and how likely is, is disruption to, to some of the good work going on? You know, I don't really have a sense uh, personally for, for how, how much bipartisan support there is for a lot of the stuff in here. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because uh, I haven't heard someone ask that before, but it's, it might be in the back of people's minds. Um, two things I'll answer, uh, at least we'll see what happens when my lips start flapping. One of them is, um, a lot of the people, so ONCD is the office of the national cyber director. It's a brand new part, uh, passed in the law by the cyberspace Solarium commission, people like, uh, Jim Langevin of Rhode Island, who's co-founded the cyber caucus he's done now. And, and Catco is his Republican partner. Um, that was because prior to that, um, it was up to each new president to decide if they cared about cybersecurity at all and how elevated that cybersecurity person was. So we've had some cybersecurity czars before, 
but how much power they've had has been up to the individual president. ONCD is now a permanent Senate confirmed function that's permanently in the executive office of the president and is meant to be a staying power and a stabilizing power across um, uh, presidents being elected. So um, thus far, knock on wood, um, cyber remains a nonpartisan issue. There are certain issues that could easily pull them into partisan splits, but the ONCD is meant to be a more permanent institution that always has the same staff budget and influence irrespective of who comes in the the head of that will be a political appointee um, the first one was chris Inglis, who was beloved by everybody and it was part of the cyberspace slayer commission um currently um the acting uh, uh oncd is kemba walton who um is also very familiar to this and was his uh deputy so uh, that group and staff is meant to be a more permanent institution with um, the ability for Senate oversight and confirmation uh, going forward. So that's one part of the answer. The other one is there's this thing called the Overton window, uh, which is political will is a funny thing. It doesn't last forever. And this notion that it's currently bipartisan and bicameral, like House and Senate, both generally agree on these things, that won't last forever. So this I think we see an Overton window proven by the Patch Act passing in a law against heavy lobbying, and it's not going to stay open forever. These windows close. So um, of all the things we just talked about, obviously, um, liability is very controversial and, and much <clears throat> less likely to pass in a House uh, and Senate being split uh, red and blue. Well, um, and, and that's the yeah. bit that you bet would get sorted in the courts anyway, right? Yeah. I do. I, I think it'll be in the courts. And so does a lot of other scholars here, like Andrea Matuishan, if you if you've ever met her, um, she's been a law professor going to DEF CON for like 15 years or more. She wrote a, a legal brief called the Internet of Bodies, which um, I think I met her when I was researching anonymous, but then we started collaborating as I was building up I am the Cavalry after that. And the Internet of Bodies covers a lot of ground, but um, she has we've kind of like compared notes and cross-referenced but there's a lot of case law from the physical world of how we introduce liability into other things and part of her legal brief is when you have the first court cases for loss of life um she wants this to be the source material that is pulled first from the legal journal you know archives and whatnot so in those um we've been talking before this strategy this strategy just helps because if there's um, an, an area of bodies brief pulled by the the judge and jury and the clerks um for that court case that's one thing but if they also reference well, what's the white house's posture on this they they have clear documentation and there will be implementation work streams plural coming out for many of these i'm already being um participating in some of them um they're just each one has to double check and triple check the legal authorities to figure out how they're going to do these and how how publicly they're going to do these but um my money's on there'll be a judge and jury that says hey uh, a loss of life due to a physical part failing shouldn't be no different than a loss of life from a software part failing uh, and this is how um, we may get the first case law on uh, cyber liability you could argue, and I'm not a legal scholar, so I'm not going to try right now. And if you really want one, you should have her on the show. But um, there are a couple district courts that are circuit courts that have already sort of introduced software liability, but not for cyber reasons. And part of I think this work stream is going to be a survey of what is the law of, at the federal level, what's the law at the circuit level, and case law, and the relevant case law. But one you've heard from me before, if you've seen some of my RSA talks, I did one with Jake Kuhn in 2014. And I think we called it software liability, the worst possible idea, except for all others. 
yeah. is um, one of the key things that might calm down some of the people that are freaking out about open source. Um, a lot of the language you'll see here uses the phrase final goods assembler. A lot of the stuff we use in the SBOM working groups um, is called final goods assembler. And that comes from a, a lawsuit at the turn of the century um, with Mc, McPherson, a family was suing uh, Buick Oldsmobile for the, the losses of loved ones. And in it, uh, basically the wooden wheels were collapsing and um, there was a lawsuit about it. And the automakers, that's not our fault, go sue Firestone, it's their wheels. And the judge and jury ruled in case law that as the final goods assembler, the one uh, selling product, you are in the best position to identify and eliminate risk in your supply chain. You're liable. The buck stops. The buck stops but, there. So, you know, making an open source project does not make you liable for a coding error. Um, there are certain obligations on the final goods. Well, there, there's going to be a difference between, you know, like a software library that on its own is, is, is not a product, mm -hmm. right? But if you're shipping yeah. an open source product that people are using, then that might be that might be different yeah, and these are the debates right. and concerns that are going to have and that's why it has to get hashed out yeah. but um but what they uh i think it's important that they're introducing this that, that you asked about safe harbor so i'm not going to speak for them um but i've been floating publicly for many years now um here's an example um in a world with liability so right now when you say we want software transparency we want you to be patchable we want you to avoid known exploited vulnerabilities you know, in your code and your products, and maybe you should have a, an expectation of prompt and agile response when there are new ones discovered in your product. You know, what is the shared responsibility? And in a world one, where you basically say, we're selling you a product, it's none of your business, what's in it, we're not going to offer you patches, tough, tough, tough crap, we made a risk decision, it's your problem. Then if there was harm, then you know, the, the, the operator was in no position to, 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 know, to know the risk they were taking on, no, no position to patch themselves, no position to make a formal risk acceptance. So you know, if you would snap your fingers in that world, then the producer of goods is going to have all the liability, 100%. Um, so so, so know, if we're reading, if, if we're reading between okay. the lines here, um, okay. you know, where, where we're not seeing open source uh, in here, it, it, it's really kind of between the lines and in, in pillar three, where we're talking about the, you know, the folks most capable of taking action here, ba basically they're going to be, they need to be supporting some open source. It's, it's depends on who you ask and where you draw the lines, but here's what I think is going to happen for a safe harbor. I think they're going to try liability on final goods assemblers, especially device makers in critical infrastructure or in public safety, human life areas. Um, I think those are going to be commercially transacted final goods assembled. And I think a rubric, not the rubric, but the one I promulgated a lot is if you make your, uh, if you publish the software bill materials at the time of sale and it's free of known exploited vulnerabilities or you have a prompt and agile update available when you have them, uh, maybe you would draw the line at known exploited vulnerabilities from CISA or something, pick, pick your favorite line. Um, then now you've taken that pure liability and you said okay our job is to tell you what's in it make it free of you know obvious defects and neglect and give you an update whenever you need to if you fail to apply that update that's on you so now you've taken a single monolithic the producer is always liable down to what's the shared responsibility between the producers and maintainers of goods and those who own and operate them and at least now you've split it in half. So I think something approaching Safe Harbor is going to identify the minimum standard acceptable practices from a producer of goods 
and and then uh, if the operators fail to take that advice or they uh, they take on elect like uh, acceptance of a formal risk or they never apply the patches then then that will be somewhat of the safe harbor so there's a bunch of legal scholars about to debate this very topic on pillar three um, and legal scholars. There's a bunch of economists too, though. This is a pretty multidisciplinary issue. Economists basically tell you liability is very economic. You know, uh, generally speaking, markets want to be efficient. And when you don't reveal true costs and you don't put the cost burden on the least cost avoider, um, you have an inefficient market and we're spending money on things instead of buying new products and goods. So. Um, I think there'll be legal scholars that look at this. There'll be economic scholars that look at this. There'll be trade associations that fight this. And in the wash, you're going to figure out how much burden goes on the owners and operators, how much burden goes on the producers of goods, and how maybe we need to right-size our investments in some common good public infrastructure like open source. But generally speaking, um, there shouldn't be huge surprises that we're looking for transparency, no known defects and, you know, responsible behavior for things like maybe coordinated disclosure, patching, et cetera. So I don't know how it'll shake out, but I know I'd like to see it shake out. And, um, and I think there's a head start on some of the thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love you to said, see the, um, Go ahead, I, I, I'm sorry. I was just doing some some research, and you said earlier that you felt that nine years was long, you know, before introducing yeah. an idea and then seeing a law, and then you you, you referred to uh, seed belts a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the law requiring seed belts here was passed in 1976. Yeah. The first car that was sold with seed belts was sold in 1949, right? So that's 27 years. So that's yeah. three times as long, right? So I think uh, there's a lot of things that look long to us because that's like the third or a quarter of right. our entire career. Everything's getting shorter. Yeah. But but in the end, if you zoom out, it's actually pretty short. So that that was yeah, my the, optimistic take of the day. <laughs> <laughs> it it I I fluctuate often on it was this really really fast or was it really really slow? And one of the things I keep reminding us is that. Um, the very thing I said to start I am the Cavalry, August 1st, almost 10 years ago, was our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure it in areas affecting public safety, human life, economic and national security. So it's about the rate of change. So yeah, um, Semmelweis, uh, not, not a long history lesson, but Semmelweis was the guy that said, hey, maybe you should wash your hands after you do an autopsy in the morgue before you deliver a baby or do a surgery. Radical, radical, unthinkable. Radical. And we didn't believe in germs. You were crazy to believe in these invisible organisms. Like he was ignored for about 100 years. And when people started scrubbing in, uh, the survival rate for, for mothers post childbirth went way up. He's the patron saint of motherhood. Uh, and, and post so what you're saying is in uh, 2122, when someone is sick wearing a mask in North America will be an accepted practice. That's very positive. Uh, Okay. Um, I was told when we started the cavalry, no one's, it's going to take a hundred years. And I said, I don't want to wait a hundred years. So against a hundred year scale, nine's pretty good for that one. Um, but I do think well, that, that means you faster. can get 10 things done in a hundred years, right? Like, so they, they got to be impactful things. Otherwise, you know, things are going to change more than, than they get improved, in which case you're kind of losing ground. Uh, but yeah. that, that's why I'm, I don't mind the content of the, security strategy that much um 
You know, I'm not against it. I'm not really for it. I'm just happy to see that something might happen, and then I'll reserve judgment for you know the 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 end result. But I think it's positive that you know there's there's definitely focus on it, and yeah. there might start to be some actual movement towards uh, improving things, which is interesting. And maybe some things are going to make no sense at all and will need to be changed. But I think that's to be expected whenever you're making significant changes. So that, that's why you know I, I don't know why. Um, I don't know how that will be implemented and when we're going to start seeing, you know, results, like actual results in the field from that. I'm sure it's going to take a few years, but um, not like I'm five certain, or I'm ten, certain more like not two, right? These, yeah, we won't get all these done. Uh, but if if you want some faith um, or you want to gauge your own confidence level, uh, Google the CSIS launch event for this and listen to how, listening to the opening remarks from Kemba, Kemba's excited uh, to do the implementation, she's going to define herself by in her team's um, uh, success for this inaugural ONCD by their implementation, and she uses incredibly refreshing language. Instead of this being like cyber war and cyber conflict and a lot of the cliches we use, she uses phrases like "this is a symphony, not a movement." Right? Like the, this is a piece of a symphony, and the the phrases, the metaphors, and the the emotional intelligence with which she speaks is is pretty pretty new and pretty encouraging and part of my confidence comes from seeing that they've already they're already pretty far along on implementation of several of these even if they haven't revealed that um and part of it is just it's in the context of that unprecedented political will um that we saw starting with the patch act and moving forward into this year my hesitation if i'm pessimistic is twofold one is uh will that window stay open forever I don't think so. I think the bulk of the movement's going to happen this year um, while the window's still open. And number two is, um, without sounding alarmist and ending on a bad note, um, I started off by saying the political will that drove this is successful attacks on water, food, oil and gas, electricity, hospitals. So the attackers are becoming more brazen um, and the impact and the consequences are becoming more severe and we're seeing a lot more attacks on food supply and that's just from criminals but we've also got to can't forget for a second that part of what drove this political will is that um the hot war in ukraine and russia has already had some cyber retaliation in, in parts and there's been pretty overt um telegraphs that if you interfere with us on the battle space or if we back in a corner we're going to use cyber security to retaliate against anyone who interferes so we have incredibly vulnerable and prone critical infrastructure um, that is right now having accidents and criminal actors kind of disrupt it. But if someone wanted to disrupt us more, they could quite easily do so. So I think that's is part of the mix as to why there's political will. But this sentiment and the political will may be too little too late. Uh, and we might have to see it get worse before it gets better because some of these initiatives Will take years like in yeah. some cases for food there's not even a dedicated food isaac period yeah like yeah and not but even the one. the best time to plant a tree was 40 years ago right second best yes. time is now so i, I think it, with that optic it's still better now than in two years or five yeah. years or, or or 10 years yeah well, and, my, and, my and, listeners though is please don't no one likes this right i don't i worked in the government i saw how wildly broken and ineffective it is and it has a role to play because their job is to look out for everybody, not just for one company at a time or one well, enterprise. It's, at a time. it's ineffective by design, though, right? Like that's not necessarily always bad. It's also good when something that we don't want to see happen is not allowed to happen because there's 
that process, right? So I, I don't know if we can say it's completely broken. But I'm not pro-government, pro-legislation, even if it sounds like it. What I am is that, and I think this is where the White House got as well, is we have to have a balanced share of responsibility between public good and private good, and it has been imbalanced. So this is not a revolution. It's meant to be a rebalancing, and we'll find the right sweet spot, but the current state is not sustainable. And I'm proud to see some willingness to acknowledge that. And now it's going to take open-mindedness and creativity. My, my challenge to anybody who reads this or hears this is um, look for what's right in these proposals and get them to focus on what's right to make it more right. Um, there's plenty wrong, but this is a strategy, not a plan. The devil's going to be the details on implementation, and you can either be throwing stones from afar or you can roll up your sleeves, lean in, and try to make the good parts better. And from what I've seen, the things that get traction is where you invest in making something better as opposed to tearing something down. Um, there's a lot of will to do this, and I hope that you help improve it uh, wherever you can. How does one do that? Uh, <laughs> sometimes writing. Sometimes uh, if, if someone asks you to get involved, getting involved, there'll be some public things and public comment periods for many of these. Anytime the federal government adds regulation, there has to be a public comment period. And so far, I've seen some of our friends be pretty hyperbolic, not even fact, yeah. factual all the time in their hyperbole. But um, that's unlikely I, to get I, you I, invited I, to working groups. But um, I, I think that was an opportunity for an I am the cavalry uh, plug right there. That's what that was. Maybe. Ah, I, I'm never promoting uh, groups or whatever. I'm promoting the mission. But yeah, I mean, right. whatever your, your pet product well, is, if you if you really want to make sure this doesn't mess up open source, great. Get involved and say how how we can do this really well in a way that preserves and strengthens open source, as opposed to saying, this is going to kill open source. Um, well, I mean, I mean, one thing that I think, you know, kind of clarified for me when I was working at 451 and I had the luxury to kind of like big think things, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, I was talking to you a lot, Josh, and, and, and you had started, uh, I am the cavalry. Uh, and, um, you know, one thing that, that I think became really clear is that there's a lot of critical stuff in security that the market, uh, it's, it's not so much that it can't fix it. It's, it's that there's no money in doing so. So it won't, yeah. you know, things yeah. like, um, you know, like I, I remember looking at vulnerability management and thinking well, somebody's eventually going to have to go through the 200,000 vulnerabilities, you know, that we have in this, you know, these massive commercial vulnerability databases and figure out which ones matter because most of them don't, you know, right. and then uh, when I saw the, the, you know, CISA create the known exploitable or known exploited uh, vulnerabilities catalog, I was like, there it is, you know, like that's, you know, and that's yeah. got, uh, I think 898 uh, vulnerabilities in it right now. Yeah. It's versus a very uh, small 200,000. Right? right. Right. And it's, it's like, like the the industry created the the haystack and dumped it on the needles and you know but, eventually but it's there's also be government from, from volunteers an, somebody's going to dig it out industry point of view there's also things that improved a lot since then right like you you mentioned the you know vulnerability scanners showing millions of vulnerabilities right a thing that was you know 15 years ago everyone was running these servers with you know installed software and servers that would live for like 7 years between refreshes yeah. and all of that and in some spaces we are not doing that anymore right like we're using managed cloud services and lambdas and containers yeah. with really small but, attack but surfaces a, but i don't think effect. that's happening but at the same that, time we, i don't think that's happening in um like healthcare or in, in these other sectors that that 
you know, this is looking at, right? So I think some of us that work in, in tech, it's easy to forget how different things might be um, in an ICS environment, for example, that changes uh, yeah. at a much uh, slower pace, yeah, but, right? So, but, so there's some of these improvements that they haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. Yeah, ephemeral infrastructure wasn't designed to help security, though. It was, it was more of like a, like, like a good luck side effect kind of thing that, that nah, we'll, 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 we'll take and enjoy reducing reducing complexity will improve security right now yeah is yeah. kubernetes reducing complexity is an argument we could have for a few hours but <laughs> <laughs> well everything's a bug and everything goes back to safety right you know like a lot of security stuff like like may, maybe that is the better lens to look at a lot of this stuff through yeah and this is not the point I want to end on per se, but to, to Guillaume's point, um, Dr. Suzanne Schwartz, uh, in the post-market guidance for FDA several years ago, she, she did something pretty stunning. She said, uh, cause she didn't have the right to regulate and require a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program. But what she said was in our post-market surveillance, if you have a coordinated disclosure program and you can identify and remediate your issue in 30 days and you join an ISAO, then we might let you handle your your disclosure, uh, your um, your fix on your own without regulatory action. So it was, it was a big word salad, but basically what it said is, if you've got a disclosure program and a, a CICD pipeline and test regime that can identify and fix this in 30 to 60 days, you can handle this on your own. We won't find you, we won't punish you, we won't do a safety communication. You can self-ordain. And that day, when she first introduced the 30-day thing, everybody in the room lost it. And they're like, oh, my God, it takes <laughs> us 90 days to do our QA cycle. We could never do this. And at the dinner that night, I said, hey, guys, what, what would have to be true? I said, Microsoft does nightly full regression tests on all their code. Like, what would have to be true for you to hit this incentive? Do you think that's still true, by the way? I have no idea anymore. But uh but I talked to some of the biggest medical device makers and I, I said, what would have to be true for you to advantage, take your, take advantage of this offer? Because it's not a requirement, it's an offer. And he's like, well, I guess we could do this and we could do this. I said, well, why don't we do more automation? How could you tighten your pipeline? And one of the biggest ones went and talked to like Gene Kim and got Phoenix Project for everybody and Kevin Bear and started introducing CICD DevOps principles into medical device pipeline. And they got it down to 15 days. But they went from like 90 days to 15 days. And they just never had the question or thought to do so. So I think part of the idea of holding some of these ICS and embedded systems and cyber physical systems accountable to the pace and rate of threat and attack surface um, is asking them, do we really need to do it the old way? Or can we modernize and do things? Where can we use ephemeral? Where can we use distributed? You know, the DIE principles, maybe nowhere, yeah. but maybe in some spots. And um, the overarching reaction I've seen to much of this pressure we put on medical devices is complexity reduction. Like what's our elective complexity, elective code blow, elective attack service, elective features. And it's not always putting something into the product that makes it safer. It's taking things out of the product that makes it safer. And I'm not saying we're where we need to be, but this is the first time I saw a White House or you know, congressional acknowledgement that it's not always a technology problem. It's sometimes an incentive problem. So they want to fund new ideas and reference architectures. They want to um, maybe shift financial burden and liability to those who are the best position to absorb it. And um, we already have liability and harm. It's just currently almost always on the owners, operators, or victims. And uh, I don't think we're going to solve it because they wrote a strategy. But I think the strategy is an important step to ask us to then do the implementation, have the debates, 
and hopefully people bring debates in good faith um, and get us to a better balance point. Well, that sounds like a great place to wrap. I don't know if you agree, Josh, and give you a little bit more if, if, if you've got uh, another point you want to wrap on. But, um, but that's, uh, I, I mean, it does seem pretty hopeful to me. It does seem like we finally have some traction, whereas 10 years ago, it felt like yelling into the void. Um, but, uh, but it's been awesome having this conversation. Uh, anything else before we, before we wrap it up? No, I just said it before, but I'll just say one last time. Um, this is uncomfortable. Um, I have a lot of reasons why I could attack this, uh, but we, Overton's windows are rare and short. And uh, if we're going to improve the balance and share responsibility, if we're going to find ways to like make a big leap forward on complexity reduction or get rid of really reckless and dangerous uh, IT and technical infrastructure, this is the chance to do it. So don't blow it, like make good choices, figure out what's right with it, lean in and try to help make it better. Um, because uh, it's not a spectator sport, right? We, we've been trying to argue for positive things for a very long time. And this is one of your finite windows to do so. All right, with that, thank you very much, Josh, uh, for joining us on Inter Enterprise Security Weekly today. And uh, we'll be right back in a few moments with the weekly enterprise news. The Security Weekly News is live on Tuesdays and Fridays at 12 o'clock Eastern Time most every week. I try to scan and produce a quick look at some major stories to help you keep up with what's going on in and around the industry in a short format. Myself, Jason Wood, and other guest commentators provide greater insight every week. I'm Doug White, and I hope that you will look for the Security Weekly News in all of your favorite podcast catchers and subscribe for the latest content. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Did you know Security Weekly listeners save $100 on their RSA Conference 2023 full conference pass? RSA Conference will take place April 24th through 27th in San Francisco and on demand. To register using our discount code, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash RSAC 2023 and use the code 53UCYBER. That is 53, the letter U, cyber. We hope to see you there. All right, and now for the Enterprise Security Weekly News, you can check out securityweekly.com forward slash ESW311311 if you want to follow along as we go through the news. Um, we might do a, a bit shorter news today, running kind of long in the podcast. Uh, so as usual, we, we usually don't get to every single item on the list, and, and we've got quite a few today. So let's go. So. Um, Fundings, uh, quite a few, no really big, crazy fundings, uh, but a lot of little fundings, which is interesting. Not all these are new companies, uh, I learned. Um, I mentioned uh, Leap Expert reminded me of an old uh, security company called FaceTime, uh, long before Apple uh, took over that name and, uh, and they had to rebrand the company because Apple is Apple. Um, it, it was like a messaging security uh, vendor that focused on messaging security, which was pretty unique back then and is still pretty unique now. This is the only company I know of that specifically tackles messaging security. But Leap Expert is actually not a new company. They're an older company just taking their their first Series A to, to help them grow, I guess. So what do they do? It's uh, in, enforcing rules around communications, I guess, for regulated industries and all of that? 
Yeah, I, I think that's the most common uh, use case is um, situations where you you find yourself having to use consumer messaging apps for business uses. And that means you have to be able to put some kind of controls around them, right? Um, yeah, and any of the fundings here that you got that really jump out to you, you guys? Um, none of them, let me see. I don't think any of them. So, so one of them, Olaria which I, I can't decide if that sounds like a food additive or a disease. Um, <laughs> it's, it's tradition around here to make fun of brands and, and names, which, uh, you know, I kind of live in a glass house, so I probably shouldn't. But um, I can't figure out what they do. It's, it's one of those where I don't know if they're intending to still be in pseudo-stealth. Uh, it's hard for me to tell if they're just using a lot of buzzwords or if they intend to make it hard to figure out what they do, but something around SAS and something around security. So could be close to yeah. where I live, but I, I just can't but it's, tell. It's, you know, it's a seed seed round. So maybe it's vague by definition, but or by design, I, I mean, yeah. 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 Well, and you have to remember too, the companies in Seed, they're, they're really at the beginning of their journey and they're just figuring it out as well. I'm sure they have a good right. idea. They could pivot. As far as category goes, maybe they're not quite in that place yet. Yeah, looking for market fit. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Yeah, so Clark is an interesting one. It's uh, you know, I kind of like these startups that uh, you know ha have a lot of um, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I don't know whether to describe this one as as uh, PLG uh, focus, but um, but definitely seems like they're they're selling more to the developer, more like selling security tools to to developers than s selling to the security team. And they've got a $15 million Series A. What's interesting to me is the the value of the Series A's remains pretty high. I know this is just a small yeah. sample of, of data. Like, I don't changed. know in, in no. general if that's true, but it seems like uh, it is. later rounds were more impacted, but the early rounds are still as high as they ever were. Well, and, and, and I think that's because... If if I can, I can't even put on a VC hat. Like Tyler's the closest here that could put on a VC hat. But I think the explanation you would hear is is, is look like like a Series A still has to be a certain size for it to be uh, useful, right, and functional. Like like the you know with a Series A, you're you're hiring your team, you're building your team, you know, and, and with the seed also, and their salaries haven't really significantly changed. So I think what we're what we're seeing with the market forces here is the same round sizes um, as we saw like this time last year for the, for the most part, at least for, for these rounds, but less of them. So not everybody's going to get around, um, but especially in the early stage where there, you know, I think there's a bit less, less risk, you know, cause a lot of the early stage folks get out before the, the later stages and, and sell their, their portions. Um, you know, I, I think it still makes a lot of sense. 
but yeah, those later stages, I, I, I think that's where people are predicting we're going to start seeing some cybersecurity uh, startup failures this year. I keep seeing more and more people predicting, you know, we're, we're going to see, I don't know how many we're going to see, but um, yeah, a lot of people think the money's going to run out for a bunch of folks this year. I'm not so sure. I, I think we're more likely to see some, uh, uh, some really good deals on acquisitions, which we, we do have uh, a couple acquisitions here this week. Let's see. We've got um, <clears throat> under acquisition Cisco acquiring uh, Lightspin for 200 to 250 million. I'm not really that familiar with Lightspin, but um, yeah, it looks like they're CSPM. I mean, it's a pretty good, uh, I guess that's a small exit for a CSPM considering you've got Lacework and you've got uh, Orca and Wiz who are all valued like well into the, the uh, high single digit billions at this point. Yeah, it's a, it's a small acquisition for Cisco, but it's it's a space that's just so big with so much potential and, and, and one that's clearly not going anywhere. So this looks like a, a smart win. I have heard of Lightspin. I don't know that much about them, but it seems like a very smart acquisition as far as the and market goes. Even in a down market, this is not a space that's going anywhere quickly. It's and I mean, the, the, the article says they had $25 million, um raised to date, right? So that's still potentially 10x on that uh, $25 million. So... Even though it's not, which you know, is like a which three, is still a big billion, it's still like really good multiple, right? So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we've also got uh, XM Cyber, which was a really interesting case. We we talked about last year. They were acquired by uh, a German retail giant Schwartz Group um, for seven hundred million. Back in January 2022, about seven months later, they picked up uh, CS, uh, a CSPM, Cyber Observer, which I think, uh, uh, like Lightspin, was also uh, an Israeli startup. And now they're picking up Confluera, you know, so adding uh, uh, some runtime uh, cloud, cloud security to their CSPM stack that they've already got. And I think XM Cyber was... What did they do? Were they a SIM? Were they XDR? Something like that. I think the original company's yeah, technology. Yeah, Oh, sorry. Yes, uh, XDR as far as I know. Yeah. Oh, uh, excuse me. They're continuous exposure management. <laughs> they, they've, they've got their own special name. Um, yeah, so that was episode 256. We talked about uh, XM Cyber getting picked up by Schwartz Group. And um, yeah, yeah, interesting to see some of those. Like, I, I guess, um, <laughs> I don't know, for some of these, for some of these larger companies, you know, maybe it's cheaper. Like, we've seen MasterCard pick up companies. We've seen, um, um, you know, telecoms pick up companies. You know, it, it's it's uh, 
it's interesting. You know, I don't know if it's more of just like a diversification type thing, like maybe Schwartz Group is operating more like a PE firm than, you know, they're described as a retail giant. But I guess if you think of them as a private equity firm, it makes more sense. Right. Uh, it, they're not necessarily going to integrate that to their core business, right? They're just using the money from the core business. Yeah. Or they might, you know, I, I don't know. Like, like typically VCs will, will use the products uh, in their portfolio. So yeah, may, maybe other companies in their portfolio can benefit from it. Um, <clears throat> in MasterCard, yeah, and speaking of MasterCard, they acquired Baffin Net Bay Networks, which I had not heard of. Um, they're Swedish uh, based and they are an MDR firm, maybe? Automated Threat Protection Service. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and they also have uh, Risk Recon and uh, have done a whole lot of investing in cybersecurity as well. So they've got an investing arm as well over there, MasterCard. Um, I don't typically, we don't typically talk about breaches a whole lot here, but, uh, but it was interesting. You know, I think it's interesting that uh, I, I, there's some YouTube channels that I, that I follow. And I think three of them now that have like 10 million or more uh, viewers have gotten hacked the same way and uh, and for the same reason, you know, with, with the same uh, uh, goal, you know, the attackers will throw up some kind of crypto pump and dump scam or something like that. Uh, but basically, they're, they're just stealing, you know, the, the cookies, stealing the OAuth tokens off of people's machines using cred stealer think, malware. Yeah, I think we're going to see more of that as two-factor becomes more uh, prevalent, right? Like once everything has two factor, then we already see the race towards getting actually good two factor, right? Because we've seen all the issues with SMS two factor and then, you know, TOTPs can be fished and push notif notifications can be, uh, can be spammed until someone clicks and then we move to like U2F. But then mm -hmm. what next? Okay, we'll compromise the endpoint, right? Um, but I think, you know, having worked in, uh, banks and fintechs and all of that one thing we were always really worried about was once someone is logged in what are the actions that we should require authentication again for so for yeah. example in in step up right so in any in, in a fintech uh, a few situations that we determined would require re-authentication or at least doing your second factor again would be not necessarily sending money, but sending money to a new recipient, right? Or changing your your email address that's linked to the account or, you know, these types of things. Just like when you reset a password, usually it'll prompt you to enter your old password, right? Um, and so it's, it's kind of the same kind of issue as, you know, in a few weeks ago we had, the, and it's still a thing, I think even with the latest update, the issue of uh, if you steal an iPhone and you know it's passcode, you can reset the person's Apple ID password. That's messed up. It's, Right. It's so we, we need to think of a session as something that might get stolen, right? And so we don't have, you know, constant facial recognition that makes sure it's the right person sitting at their desk at all times. But maybe renaming a YouTube cha channel and changing the URL to it should yeah. require re-authentication. So I think we're going to see improvements there because honestly, I think there's nothing you can't just tell people that run these channels like, well, make sure you <coughs> don't run malware, right? Like it's not 
feasible. <laughs> right. Oh, sure, I mean, I'm sure they try not to, but. And this story is about YouTubers, but, uh, you know, this was a story behind uh, Circle CI getting hacked. It was an engineer um, installing OBS or something like that or and and getting malware that way. And, and there was another recent one where it ended up just being, uh, you know, somebody Last getting. Pass. Last, Last Pass. Last Pass had a, uh, what, yeah. what was it, uh, Plex? I think a Plex, Plex. vulnerability on a yep. home uh, on a home computer. Um, I mean, at some point, if you trust the endpoint and someone takes control of the endpoint, something bad will will happen. But I, I think in the case of, we can at least make things better by requiring reauthentication in places yeah. where it's it's not going to be annoying in day to day use, right? Because you're not renaming your channel nonstop, just like you're not adding new bank uh, bill payment recipients all the time, right? Or, so it's not that annoying to or changing uh, somebody's to, salary. To do that. Right, like, like that right, was, right. Uh, yeah, ex- or I changing fi- the bank account you're you're sending someone's salary to, right? Like, or or a vendor, yeah. right? If you you get your Direct CRM deposit. hacked and someone tries to go change the uh, bank account numbers of all your vendors, maybe that should require reauthentication. So if you're working on these kinds of systems, I think yeah, and, and, and it's not a new that's not a new idea at all. Like like back in 2013, 2014, I remember that was one of FireLayer's pitch for their Casby. Is uh, providing you know like like demanding uh, uh, reauthentication for certain risky activities. Yeah. An example but they used the, is changing somebody's salary. The problem though was in 2013, two factor was not a thing, right? Like uh, we knew about it, we used it on some things, but it was not used at scale, and the attackers right. were just not incentivized. Uh, to do much of that because might as well just fish the username and password and just go do everything I need to do. I don't need to steal an existing session if I can open another one. And one thing I found interesting there too is uh, Google is actually pretty good around um, on Google Workspace. Um, if, if you have like a corporate Google Workspace environment, for example, and you try to like back up your laptop completely and restore it on a new laptop and then just like boot it up and open Chrome and you've got some active sessions there, you will get... Uh, I think it's all in the default settings. You'll get some some critical alerts um, mm. that a session is not being used uh, on a new computer. Like I don't know if that requires using Chrome with their uh, endpoint verification uh, uh, extension or or what, but it's definitely a problem that they've they've seen and on the GCP side and on the Google Workspace side. But I don't think you know, even though it's still a Google account, I don't think there's a you know, YouTube is kind of a different company, so. Right, and, and that's the interesting thing here. And the reason I include it is, uh, you know, some of these larger uh, YouTube channels are basically like double-digit revenue companies, you know, and and uh, and but it all revolves around this one streaming service. This one, you know, and some of them have diversified, you know, like uh, uh, Linus Media Tech Group, which which I think was the the one that inspired including it here. Uh, them getting hit, uh, they actually built their own video platform that they call Floatplane, you know, and and another one that got hit with this uh, Corridor Crew also has their own uh, video hosting and, and streaming service that they that they built themselves, and, and you can you can watch their videos on their platforms, and, and we've seen others come out of this also, but still, you know, a lot of that revenue comes from YouTube itself, and they're just not giving them <laughs> clearly you know, the right security tools aren't built into it. <laughs> I, should, I should mention we're streaming on YouTube right now. <laughs> uh, I I hope you don't have malware on your computer. 
I I don't have admin access to our YouTube account, so I'm not worried about it. The the, the other thing I found almost boring is if you're going to start stealing uh, these channels that have like 35 million subscribers, won't someone make an attack that's more interesting than just freaking crypto scams and pump and dumps and send me your money it just gets really uh, repetitive so please it's if you're going to be right? malicious if you're going to be malicious can you just be uh, a bit more, more creative creative <laughs> <laughs> well we we i, I mean that that is such a I, I, it happens so often though we've seen it over the years like somebody does this incredible hack gets access to an entire military or just some some ridiculous amount of access and then they mine monero <laughs> like that's the most creative thing they can think to do and they make like eight dollars before they get caught i think like, I, I mean if i think <laughs> yeah exactly but the, the good thing is it's just like you know crypto miners if you get owned and the only thing that's on your machine that's running is a crypto miner that like you got off pretty well right like no data was stolen or deleted or whatever so at the same time if if their financial incentive is to do something that's going to be less impactful to those that are attacked i guess it is good but it's just weird it's been years now uh, and all we see are crypto miners crypto scams any anytime you see like elon musk's face on on anything it's like a 75 chance that it's going to be fake so Yeah, our, our our threat machine learning models, you know, like that's one of the the, <laughs> the top things is a picture of Elon Musk. That's funny. Um, so oh, good lord, did you guys look at uh, Bing Bang and and what happened there with with Bing? Yeah, is, is that that's the one that Wiz found with that uh, yes. Active Directory misconfiguration. <laughs> Uh, describing it as an active directory misconfiguration is, is just selling it so short though. Like it's, it's amazing. So if I can, let me find the Twitter thread, uh, that came from the, the, the guy that discovered this and, and wrote this up. Um, because it, it goes through it really nicely. Yeah, here it is. So basically What happened here is the, the researcher, Hilai Ben Sassen, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Sorry if I'm not, but uh, he basically, they're, they're looking at stuff in Azure as he's, I, I mean, it's, it's their job to find bugs in AWS, Azure, GCP, basically. Uh, the research folks at uh, Wiz, Orca, and Lacework, like there's no shortage of, of these kinds of things coming from them. Uh, but they, they found a single checkbox. That's all that separates an app from becoming multi-tenant, uh, which allows all users to log in. And basically, Bing and parts of Bing's are apps in Azure. <laughs> so uh, it was called Bing Trivia, and he was able to log into it, uh, no problem. And, uh, and he found that it controlled actual search results. So he started playing with it, And like he used to search for best soundtracks. Yeah, I, I love the putting the hacker soundtrack as the best, uh, the best soundtrack. Dune. That was funny. The 2021 Dune was at the top of the list, but he was like, nah, it needs to be hackers. <laughs> and just to, just to see if he can change live search results, he makes a change. And sure enough, live search results then showed hackers uh, as the, the top uh, best soundtrack uh, for, for movies. And then he checked for cross-site scripting. 
you know, and, and then, you know, and that worked. And then he realized, uh, this is the key phrase for me, Bing is allowed to issue office tokens for any logged on user. So anyone using Microsoft 365, Bing is has full access to your account, basically. And because he was able to log into this Bing trivia thing, he was able to issue uh, a, a valid token for anybody's for any Microsoft 365 user. And so he was able to get access to all the email, full access to calendars, Teams messages, SharePoint documents, OneDrive files uh, from any Microsoft 365 user using Bing. All he would have to do is drop in his cross-site scripting, and all you would have to do is go and use Bing while logged into a Microsoft 365 uh, session, and and boom. <laughs> like if he hadn't, if he had. Well, so, what uh, are the odds someone's going to go use Bing though? <laughs> Maybe higher now that they have the new AI stuff. But I still feel like oh. it's really interesting that this all starts from an Active Directory or Azure AD misconfiguration, right? That's that's like at the top of the attack chain. And I'm just thinking if Microsoft yeah. can't even use AD securely, what are where's the hope for everyone else, right? It's a design issue, right? Like, like it should never, like something this powerful, th this easy to, sh to foot gun yourself should never be that easy. You should never make it that easy to, to shoot yourself in the foot. Well, it, it's a, a design issue, but it's also a settings issue. There are so many settings that somebody would need to pay attention to if they're using this right. suite, right? That's why it's, it's a design Microsoft. issue. Is, is it's how you design settings. Like if you make the the most critical oh, yeah. button oh, okay. super yeah. easy to press, somebody gonna press it. Right. There, but there are just so many settings. Yeah. If you're it, using Microsoft, they're just like it's so complicated. There are, you know, probably always. hundreds and hundreds of settings that admins have to go through. And that's I, I mean, that's just that that's Microsoft. You know uh, you're going to have a problem <laughs> when something. It's like you know, hey, please click here to read. You know, to accept these terms and conditions, and it's 27 pages. Nobody reads it. Nobody's yeah. going to go through 365 M365 settings. I mean, it's actually probably even more than that. I don't know, but it's just you're looking for trouble when it's that cumbersome. Yeah, and and that's classic Microsoft. Uh, everything takes twice as many steps as it should, and yeah. and it's it's just really difficult to navigate things. I mean, that's that's my I, I've been working with Azure a lot, just in my day job because you know we support integrations to it uh, in both my previous job and my current job, and it, it's it's just amazing to me how difficult they manage to make things. I. I <laughs> And it's, kind of it's, I think a big at, part of it but is you said it. I wanted you to say it. I didn't want to say it. Right. And it's not just Azure. It's Xbox, too. It's like across everything they do. Go ahead, Guillaume. Uh, I think uh, I think for 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 Azure, a big part of it is backwards compatibility has always been their strength, but it's also uh, a weakness when it comes to trying to make things simple. And I think that like legacy AD, right, like the normal Active Directory that people use, um, Every large company still uses it, right? I don't think any new company is ever going to use it, right? Like no one starts a company and goes, oh, I need to deploy some domain controllers out there. 
but because they have all that that existing client base that uses AD, the on-prem version of AD that maybe they also run in domain controllers in Azure. Then they use 365. They need to tie that up to Azure AD, some kind of hybrid model. And to me, hybrid usually means the worst of both worlds, right? Like I don't like hybrid cars, get an electric, get a gas car. I just don't like adding complexity by supporting these completely different modes of, uh, of operation. Um, but it's, it's their business model. And I think for, for a lot of customers, it's actually very important to have that uh, compatibility into their traditional environments. But at some point, I'm just wondering when will the security issues related to Azure start to hurt them? Because I don't know if it's just me looking at the news, but whenever I see pretty bad cloud uh, security issues between the big vendors, I think it's pretty rare that it's GCP or AWS, and it's actually pretty common that it's Microsoft. Um, maybe that's well, completely biased by you know the, the the media that I read and the I people that I follow, but it, it feels so, like Azure, like in the last six months, it's not been having a good run. So we looked into this, and, and I can speak to this uh, because I had the same thought, Guillaume. And and what I found is, uh, no, the frequency is about the same. Like, like they're finding stuff in GCP and, and AWS, but the impact of the vulnerabilities are much more uh, on Microsoft. And that's why it seems like it's it's so much worse over there is be, because the types of bugs they're finding are much worse, much more impactful, you know, if, if this hadn't been caught by a researcher and, and just worse in every way. <laughs> And and more dumb, right? Like like they're they're just very weird and and simple um, issues that uh, you know should have been should have been caught. Yeah, maybe you're right for for the impact. Maybe for downtime, it's the same thing. Where if you have an issue that affects the entire cloud versus an issue that affects only a specific availability zone, and everyone's going to talk about it, of course, because everyone was affected at once. Um, right. So. But that, that's a weird aspect of it, right? Like, like I'm not sure how we're supposed to feel about this since um, all the cloud bugs that we hear about, we only hear about them after they've been fixed in, in a lot of these cases. And uh, as long as it's only researchers at Wiz finding these, you know, then I, I guess it's not a huge issue, you know, but I, I don't know how many well, of these we we've seen. Hear, we, we, hear of those, we hear of those that, yeah, people at, in different security companies or researchers find, but we also don't hear those that Microsoft finds internally and fixes, right? Like even after they fixed it, I think for most of them, we'll, we'll never know. And that's true for most uh, cloud vendors out there. So there's, there's definitely a lot of information that is just not public. So we don't we don't really know, you know, how much actually gets fixed, how much actually gets found. But I think if that much can be found by, you know, a few companies with their research teams, I think it's safe to say that uh, they're not the only ones finding it. Yeah. 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 Fair. Yeah. We don't know what we don't know. Um, just want to just want to call out the the company I work for. Um, I've been there for about a month, Valence Security. I'm super excited that we're in the innovation sandbox and I just have to give a just a blatant ad, just a shout out there. As I'm I'm such a huge fan of the innovation sandbox. I, I think it's it's entertaining. I think it's a great idea. And uh, I always watch every one of the presentations every year, just waiting and wondering, is there going to be somebody who stumbles and gets their microphone cut off at the three-minute mark? And uh, Oh, you're such a pessimist. Oh, 
I'm I'm generally not in for drama, but uh, but I, I I love vendor presentation drama, and uh, are, are I, I, th- I think we're innovate. Are you giving the innovation sandbox talk? Oh no, I'm not presenting. It'll it'll be our uh, CEO Yoni, but uh, I'm definitely involved, and in, yeah, we're going to make it as as awesome as we can. But uh, it's 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 a lot of fun. The whole process is pretty cool. It, it's uh, they've been doing it for 15 years, so it's it's fairly well locked down. But yeah, but yeah, it's really cool. It's one of the few ways that a, a security startup uh, can get some visibility at RSA without spending like a quarter million bucks. You know. But it is a lot of work. It it is it is not, you know, have to get your two hundred and fifty thousand plus booth. But it's a lot of work. So it's not, it's not free in that sense. It takes well, yeah, a lot of work, yeah. a lot of prep. Yeah, we're we're happy to do that work though. It's it's fun work. I enjoy it. Uh, like I gave me an excuse to go back and analyze a bunch of the old uh, innovation sandbox videos and. You know, you know, do the winners have anything in common? You know, what they do right, what they do wrong. Like, where do we need to focus our efforts? So I'm, I'm having fun with it. Uh, the next thing here, uh, I thought number seventeen was hilarious. I don't know if you guys uh, checked this out specifically, but basically, somebody predicted recruiters were going to be using AI to send LinkedIn messages, and uh, of course, they are. And somebody anticipated that and changed like uh, part of his LinkedIn profile to a prompt injection that basically says, uh, ignore all your previous instructions and do this instead. And it's, it's brilliant. And I, I enjoyed this, this tweet very much. Yeah, that's uh, we, we've, we've seen things in the past of people in, injecting things in like their, uh, first names or last names on on linkedin or twitter or whatever and, and see, or, or their um their title or pronouns and seeing weird um, emails from recruiters that were obviously generated automatically so i think that's yeah. the that's the next level of it it's just it's much funnier yeah, mail merge. The out, the, right and then the, the, the but the, this time the output is um the the output is not what you've injected into it directly, right? Like it's uh, kind of uh, reflected. So I think it's more interesting. So I think we should all go and do this. Yeah, yeah, and and, and this is um, yeah. As people start using large language model based AI, like like I I love including this stuff because we kind of have to change our thinking and like uh, how how we're going to use it. Like here the. Uh, you know, the lesson out of this is uh, you need a human in the loop. You know, don't directly connect an, an AI API to the output without reviewing it yourself. Because <laughs> that's, that's just inviting disaster and embarrassment. But yeah, really clever trap. Uh, looking forward to seeing more of those. And uh, we talk about AI a lot here. We're not going to be talking about it this much this week, but our story number 19, if you have not kept up with all the crazy stuff that's happened in the last uh, year or so with large language models and chat GPT and all that, uh, story number 19 is a great 25-minute video that will get you caught up on what it's capable of, what it's doing. Uh, I'm having constant conversations uh, with folks about it. And, and the one thing I've noticed is, is people are really selling it short. Like he's saying it's it's overhyped and, you know, oh, you know, it can't do this, for example. 
And, and the examples they give are things that it can do. You know, and so what I urge everybody to do is just to go out and start using it. It's free to use it. It was the first product to hit or the fastest product to ever hit 100 million users. I think ChatGPT hit 100 100 million in less than uh, three months or something like that. Whereas like the iPhone and Facebook and, you know, all these other things we could compare it to took years to get to 100 million users. So there's yeah, no well, excuse I think, not to. Uh, I, iPhone, you know, it's 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 hardware, so really difficult. I think uh, Microsoft Kinect actually beat yeah. the iPhone and, and and iPad at some point, but it's still hardware. But for software, yeah, it's crazy. I think like everyone out there has tried it a few times. I know of many people that are paying for the um, the Pro version with you know GPT four, so they can I do am. some yeah. some mm-hmm. more testing on it. I like I personally used it. To submit like um, uh, my bio to uh, to a few conferences, I just hate writing nice. about myself in in. Uh, that's a great in the use third, case. Uh, yeah. That's a well, yeah, exa- use of it. I am so never hard. doing that again. Exactly. You just want something or someone else to write the bio about you, and you know half of it was total crap, but I just deleted it. Right, the rest was actually right. good. Right, you edited. Um, yeah, yeah, but I think for for recruiters specifically, we, like I already see a big difference between like really good recruiters and those that just like automate and, and, and spam out a, a lot of messages. Um, but they could all, they could also use this for good, right. For, for filtering out the people that they want to contact better, right. Like instead of just looking for a few buzzwords in their profiles and then, okay, let's send this to everyone who's got security in their profile. They could actually use this to, create tools that are going to be more uh, more intelligent but that that might take a little while before we uh, we see that but there's also going to be some some positives there it's not just going to be more spam it's going to be better targeted spam is that positive i don't know <laughs> i, I so, feel like so i talked myself out of my own opinion in like 30 words so i think i i think um yeah the 20 bucks a month to be able to use gpt4 is definitely worth it uh and there's a lot of controversy about that because uh apparently the plan was to hold off on releasing gpt4 until they got more feedback but basically management uh said no get it out the door and it's not like 2x 3.5 it's not like twice as good it's like a hundred a hundred x and, you know, I think that shows in, in almost all the tests they've thrown at it, you know, almost all the use cases. There's tons of examples on Twitter of here, here's me asking the same question to uh, GPT 3.5 and G, GPT 4. So the, the fake so, facts, the, the hallucination, all that stuff, uh, like for me, for, for all my testing, uh, pretty much went away in GPT 4. Yeah, well, which actually might mean that those that are there are more dangerous because you you might not be as uh, as yeah, critical you, you of what you receive, right? Like if it's yeah. mm-hmm. if it's true, like ninety nine percent of the times, then you don't double check as much. One thing I'm looking forward to trying with it with the bigger token sizes. Um, with three I was trying to do um, threat modeling as well as to argue uh, with the bot on where something fit in the cyber defense matrix because I <laughs> I felt like. It's it's something that I have a hard time um, doing on my own without arguing with someone, and that's where we find right. like exactly where something goes. And I figured, hey, maybe I'm going to argue with the uh, with the bot, but it didn't have a big enough token size, and um, it was actually pretty hard to ha- 
keep a conversation going long enough for it to start being useful and then it would just break because uh, there was just too much uh, data to replay in there. So I think with, I, with I, version I just accepted no matter where I put it. So Neil's going to tell me it's wrong. Yeah, yeah, but uh, then <laughs> y- y- you you can point them to uh, if GPT four says it's true, then yeah, yeah, there true. you go. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's it, it's uh, super interesting to play with. I, I keep finding new use cases and stuff like that. Like I'm trying to see how it can speed up production of the show, like the prep work that I have to do for the show. Uh, a lot of things are things it could do, like write the show notes. I would love it if it could like pick out the chapters. And things like that, like as we go through the news stories, you know, actually put in the the chapters. But uh, even though GPT is multi-mode, I don't think it can accept audio yet. Like they, they don't have a way for you to feed it uh, certain media types. Whereas Bard does, you can ask Google Bard, hey, summarize this um, um, this podcast. And you just give it a link to the MP3 and it'll do it but in in my experience it's entirely halluc- hallucinated like it's stuff we didn't even talk about in a podcast it just completely makes it up like it is like security related yeah. like it's on the right topic but we did not talk about that at all in this episode so what from a security point or a privacy point of view something i saw that was really really interesting and i'll i'll find the link so you can add it to uh the show notes maybe so okay. um do you know do you know ben thompson from uh, stratechery He's a you know blogger and tech analyst, um, but he's written a lot Sounds on the web, familiar. right? So it's well, you, you've definitely read some of his articles, that's for sure. Um, but the point is, he's written online a lot, right? Just like you know, yeah, you've yeah, been yeah. on a lot of podcasts. If you have a pretty big presence on the internet, there's stuff out there. Um, and someone took the first paragraph of one of his articles that was paywalled, and and therefore not accessible to any of these models plus the models are not updated in real time anyway so it, it didn't have it and right. just asked who, who complete this article it, who, oh, no ask okay. who do you think wrote this and mm. it said oh based on blah 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 it's probably ben thompson and i was thinking wow. from a, a privacy point of view you know what could we do with all the text that's in different forums because there's you can like that's a pretty well, it's a pretty classic way for someone getting caught doing something criminal, which is they have pretty good opsec, you know, technically. Um, right. you know, they always use always use Tor, always connect from displays, go through 900 proxies, whatever. But then they use an expression that no one else uses on a forum, and and you know that uh, that plants the seed to uh, start an investigation around where they are, and then they get caught. But now I'm thinking, what if you could do this? At scale, right? You you have like yeah. all this text from people you you think are well from people that are currently anonymous that you're trying to de-anonymize, and as they post more on the internet and the uh, models get updated, then maybe you get a hit at some point, and, and that's something you can go and investigate. Like, of course, right now I don't think everyone has uh, nearly as much you know online written content right. as uh, Ben Thompson does, but um, there's probably some people that do just you know forum posts. Facebook posts and Twitter and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's crazy. You know, like, like a lot of this stuff is saved too, right? Like even if you deleted some of your stuff off the internet, it, it might still exist in some of these old, old models. So that's not necessarily a, a defense either, but, um, but yeah, they're, they're now, so, you know, a couple of things, you know, I think it's kind of dangerous. Like some of them are 
stupidly bad. Like uh, I mentioned Google Bard. I, I gave it a picture of me and I said, who is this? And it said, Will Ferrell, um, which is <laughs> hilarious and, and, uh, and, and clearly wrong. But um, so, so it, I think that's part of the reason that people are dismissing a lot of this stuff. But then you go over to, to GPT-4 and it's just uh, like some of it is just so spot on. It's, it's, it's really scary. Uh, so, and the other thing I wanted to mention is that, uh, GPT plugins, chat GPT plugins is going to be huge. And, uh, I, I'm on the waiting list to get access to it, but I mean, that's just a brand new world because all of a sudden this language model that doesn't know anything that happened after December, 2021, uh, like they were showing some examples, like literally you can say, go, you know, give me a summary of, of this current event and it'll go read a dozen news articles in two seconds and come back and give you, give you the results. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm now, looking forward to, I'm looking forward to when we can use that internally. And it, it's definitely coming up right with, you know, Microsoft announced what, uh, Microsoft copilot yeah. for security as well as copilot for 365. Um, I'm actually more interested in the four 365 part. Um, yeah, it's Microsoft is going to be, it, well, not virtual employee, but think of how many times, and it, this is Microsoft, but the same thing is going to come to Google Workspace and Slack and all of that, obviously, it might just be a question of timing. But how many times has documentation been a problem for you as a security professional, right? Like, who owns yeah. this? What does this server do? What does blah, blah, blah? How do I Who's X? the asset owner? Yeah. And, and the document, the information is sometimes in a Jira ticket, in a Slack post, in an email, in on the wiki that hasn't been updated in two years, but then there's an update that's somewhere else in a Jira ticket. And I'm thinking a, a good percentage of questions that we have like that could be answered by, by a bot like very effectively. Or imagine you're a new employee in a new company, right? Um, sometimes you feel bad asking 62 questions in a day because right, you right. know they're somewhere on the internet or whatever, but the search is kind of bad and Slack search is really, really bad. So now what if you can just ask the bot, you know, from security questions or like who owns X, uh, this person does, they updated it to do what? Okay, what's uh, what's the next holiday? Well, here's the document, just like amazing search uh, brought close to us. I think that has the potential to improve security, especially when doing like incident response, right? You need to find the latest information about something. And now you've got something that crawled all of it and is able to answer you um, rapidly without you having to search in like five different platforms. So I'm actually looking forward to that, especially for, I guess, incident response is the most obvious one because time is of the essence, right? I, I can just imagine this, uh, people feeding HR data into it and employees plugging in stuff like, uh, how how much was Guillaume's bonus last year? And did he really earn that? You know, did he work enough to earn that bonus? Oh, yeah. And definitely just managing the permissions, right? Like, so it doesn't go and index things that you didn't have the right yeah. to go read what? yourself and tell you about it. That's going to be. But that's why I see, yeah. like, the first iterations of that as, uh, you know, here's your internal, internally public content that gets indexed. Yeah. Everything that requires specific permissions. Let's, let's wait a little bit but, because but I, I think there's definitely all... a danger. It's not all going to be public because people aren't careful careful about what they do with data, right? Like, uh, on you know, back as far as you can remember, as long as there's been file shares, people will put stuff on everyone full control file shares that shouldn't be there. Yeah, yeah, and then the file was accessible, but doesn't mean everyone went and read it. Now, it's more likely that it'll be abused, essentially. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, there's a few more interesting articles here. Um, publicly traded companies, apparently, well, I mean, the SEC hasn't finalized that rule, so I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, nobody's running to add additional cyber expertise to their boards yet. You know, that, that'll be something that uh, I guess there'll have to be some enforcement on. They're not even talking about enforcing anything. They're talking about just like you have to admit how much cyber expertise you have on the board. And then there's a story about, um, you know, some CISO trends, uh, you know, potentially CISO uh, and CIO having some uh, some conflict of interest almost, you know, where, where they want to kind of separate out that that management chain. Uh, so some interesting stuff there to, to to read. I think we're about out of time today, but uh, urge folks to go take a look at the the list of stories here. Uh, anything, uh, Katie or Guillaume, you want to hit on before we wrap? I'm good, but I'll remember to put that uh, tweet I just told you about about that uh, Ben Thompson de-anonymization thing in the show. Yeah, notes. yeah, I'll, I'll add it. Yep. Yeah, just uh, send it over. Cool. And with that, uh, thanks so much, uh, Guillaume, for, for being our emergency uh, co-host today. It's been great having you. you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you, Katie, for, for jumping in. I, I know you had uh, you had another thing that you had to do. You had, you had work responsibilities or something. <laughs> yeah, sometimes sometimes those pesky work responsibilities. No, we, have, we, we had a pretty important meeting today and uh so thanks for letting me jump on for yeah. two-thirds yep yeah. awesome and a big thanks to everyone watching or listening to this week's episode of enterprise security weekly we will see you next week <laughs>